Welcome to another edition of the Logic and Larry podcast. This is the Christmas edition because I don't know how much longer I will be going live through the holidays. So I thank those of you who have joined me tonight. Everybody loves the live version of the show, but perhaps they listen to it not live. I don't know. But I'm here with you. I'm happy to be here with you. Happy that you're here with me. And we have a good show for you tonight. We're going to discuss current events, things that have happened in the country. And we are also going to hear from a very special guest who is normally a great guest in general anyway, Rick. And I look forward to that interview. And it's going to be great, so that's coming later in the show. And I'm looking forward to that. Now, anything I say on this show or anything I say over the course of this podcast is completely my own opinion as a private citizen. It's just me as a private citizen talking to you and conversing back and forth. All I'm doing is talking about current events. I'm not taking any political sides. I'm not advocating for any political candidate or anything of that nature. Everything I say in this podcast is strictly my opinion. It does not reflect the opinion of any other entity or any other group of people or any other person at all. Simply me as a private citizen. That being said, it's been an interesting week. Ladies and gentlemen, I am at wit's end. When you're a regular person trying to get by, I tell you, they try every way they can to try to make it hard for you. And people will test your patience nonstop. And I've been frustrated this week, right? People just want to want to, you know, look. If you've been a follower of me for any significant amount of time, if you've followed my Facebook page, if you've engaged with me, if you've listened to my podcast, if you listened to my previous podcast, and those who know me know I've been in several, right? You had the blatant minority. You had raw radio. You had stuff, junk, things, and whatnot. By the way, Danny Deeds was the co-host on almost all of those. Raw Radio was a four-man show, and you know how that went. That was great, but that was <laughs> so long time ago. It's in the archives. You know, those of you who know me and know who I am, the kind of person I am, you know, look, and it happened last week with Rick, right? If there is a legitimate point brought up or legitimate counterpoint, a legitimate thing to discuss or to go over or a reason for me to reflect upon myself or my positions, I am always humble enough to re-examine said positions and to publicly acknowledge points that were made that might have been contrary to my initial point, which caused me to broaden my horizons. Because after all, this is the Logic of Larry podcast, and aren't we... Aren't we consistently, as a theme of this podcast, re-examining our positions and taking in new facts, statistics, and knowledge, examining those positions and recalibrating our positions 
in conjunction with those things in order to refine our understanding of the world around us and refine the way that we interact with information and the way we interact politically and socially and all those things. That's the point of the podcast. That's why I do it. And last week when Rick brought up a, a valid point, which, you know, you don't even have to tell me. You don't have to spell it out. All he said was, you know, you, you, you pursue your own ideological purity of logic. And that in and of itself could pose problems. He didn't even have to finish the sentence. And I was like, oh, you know, based on what you said, I can self-reflect. And based on my self-reflection, I can see that my own, my own purported political or ideological ideology, for lack of a better term, which is as absurd as it is because it was self-critical to say, could be re-examined and could be criticized in and of itself. And I appreciate the background music. That's Bruce. So we're in Jersey. That's Bruce. So look, I appreciate those things. And last week, Rick had me re-examine some of my positions. And it's interesting because if you know me, you would know that I actually was, once upon a time, much further left. I was much further left than I am now. Now I'm much more centrist in my general perceptions of things. And that in and of itself, that in and of itself is a testament to my self-reflection. Because the only way I wound up further left and then came back to the center ideologically was because I self-reflected, was because I acknowledged valid points that were brought against me. And I acknowledged valid information that came in and I processed that information and I perceived and observed new information and I processed that information and then when I did so, it came back out correctly and altered my, my view. Because the only way that we can succeed as people is if we're constantly observing, constantly analyzing new information and then observing and then adjusting our perceptions and adjusting our positions to accommodate what we've perceived. And that's what I do all the time. So the reason I'm somewhat agitated this week is people, people, look, if a guy, if there's a lion on a hill, and he's a logical lion, okay, logical lion, but he never lies, he's a lion, though, he's logical. And he, and he, he always admits when he's wrong, and he admits when there's a good point, but he strikes down bad points, and he's got a good track record of, of winning those arguments. Why push buttons just to push buttons? Why do that? Leave him alone. Leave him alone. I've been challenged for no reason this week, over and over, on nonsensical arguments and nonsensical things, and it's it's agitating the heck out of me. Now, look, there's things I can't talk about. There's things going on in my personal life, things going on in other realms that are already have me agitated. And then you have this ridiculous public dialogue that we currently deal with that's also got me agitated. There's no reason to, to, to push the button on that end. And it's it's everybody. It's not one, one person. So many people do. Just let me live, man. I'll take a deep breath. Now, one thing I'll say is this. My buddy, Will, if he wants to out himself as to who he's talking about, then he can do it. But I'm not going to do it for him. He saved me this week, literally two hours ago, because he, he sent me a very interesting article. He's living in Portland, Oregon. 
And he sent me a great article that that I'm going to highlight in a few minutes. And I think it was, you know, here's here's what brings me back. Here's what brings me back to feeling good and and and, and you know having con- you know just just loving what's going on. Is this? People still reach out to me, all of you, when something really deep crosses your mind or you see an interesting story or something causes you to self-reflect, you reach out to me. That's dope, right? Because that that reinforces my faith in humanity and reinforces my faith that we are reaching people, we are connecting with each other, and we are spreading logical knowledge, and that's dope. And I'm going to get to what Will talked about in a few minutes because it was it was really an interesting thing that he brought up. And it kind of ties in overall with a lot of the things I'm going to talk about tonight. So let's go through you know, some of the news and things that have happened this week and then we're going to get on to the rick interview which i got to be honest with you i'm very excited about this is a guy who is consistently a contributor to our conversations who is consistently a contributor to this podcast who is an integral part of this podcast and to get his kind of story is just going to be dope and i'm actually really excited about it so let's talk about the news and then we'll get to our guests for the night now First thing that I'll, I'll talk about in the news is, is very basic stuff, which we all kind of expected, and you know who I, you know, every week we go through this little uh, exercise. Donald Trump, Donnie, what he did was, this week, Texas filed a lawsuit to intervene in the election and to um, try to invalidate or rescind or at least delay the Electoral College in the hopes of reinvestigating or reopening the uh, elections of Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, I forget the uh, Georgia. And uh, he wanted to reopen these things. He wanted to, the, the Attorney General of Texas I'm talking about, filed this lawsuit with the Supreme Court to essentially overturn the election or to invalidate the results of those four states. 18 attorneys general, okay? 18 attorneys general joined in this ridiculous, frivolous lawsuit to overturn the election, a free election, in support of Donald Trump. Now, Donald Trump tweeted at this time that this quote was the big one. This was the big one. And basically started galvanizing his supporters to think this was the big one. And he got everybody's hopes up that's a Trumpy. But those of us who know anything about the law, know anything about constitutional law, know anything about the Supreme Court, even despite the fact that it has a conservative bent, or despite the fact that Trump appointed three of them, knew that this thing was dead in the water. And, and some of us even called out. We had the courage to call out. The attorneys general who dared to actually sign their name to such a frivolous and anti-democratic lawsuit in the first place. Now, are there some legally cognizable grounds upon which they founded it? Yes. But anybody worth a damn thing can find some legally cognizable premise upon which to file a lawsuit. That doesn't mean it's in good faith. That doesn't mean that there's any actual substantive merit to it. That doesn't mean that they're acting in the best interest of the people they represent or the people of this country. So it was a shame. It was an actual shame 
that they filed this lawsuit to begin with. And I called them out, and I hope a lot of other lawyers had the courage to call them out. Hope being the operative word, right? I called them out. The Supreme Court struck them down, as they should have. And so Donald Trump takes another L, despite him acting as if that was the big fish and that was the main case that he was going to actually turn the tide on. It didn't happen. So now Trump takes another hit. The attorneys general of these states take a hit that's well-deserved. And we move on. As I've predicted for a while now, Biden's going to be the next president. He's going to be inaugurated on January 20th. But the people who are trying their best to usurp the will of the people and usurp our democracy deserve to be rightfully, rightfully called out. Rightfully called out. And then it's funny, because anybody who hasn't listened to the podcast as much, when somebody new comes on, too, like, if they're from my area where I'm from, they know the music, they know the vibe, they're ready. Because, you know, Jersey Cats, we know what's up. But that was the news on the Trump front, and it was interesting. And, you know... That's the news we got from there. It's just another L for Trump. Trump needs to, you know, he's not talking about COVID. While COVID is destroying this country, he's done a piss poor job on COVID. And now he's trying to usurp the will of the people in a free election. And he's getting smacked, right? That's the thing about him I don't understand, right? There's a strategic methodology to anybody who actually wants to be, even if you want to be an insidious, egregious human being and you want to usurp the will of the people, you can do that strategically. You can do that with some tact. You can do that tactfully in some regard. And you can actually try to kind of succeed in your plot. Or you could just look like a complete and utter clown all the damn time. All the time. And he's just getting smacked. He's, he's bringing up stuff and getting smacked. Bringing up stuff and getting smacked. And he's just continually getting smacked. And it's, it's, it's a joke. He's making himself look like a clown. So that's, that's the news. But, but is that, that news is never different, right? That news is never different. There's a lot of other news this week, right? First of all, COVID. Let's talk about COVID. COVID is still surging. I told you last week, I'm... Look, when I say I'm sick of COVID, by the way, I don't mean... This is another person that came at me today for whatever reason. I don't mean that I don't care about restrictions to try to stop the spread. I don't mean that I don't take COVID seriously. I've taken COVID seriously from the beginning of it. I continue to take COVID very seriously. We should all be taking COVID seriously. Right now, it's at an all-time high in this country, and it's very dangerous, and it's spreading very rapidly across most cities in the United States. We could go post-mortem or, or even right now and go back and analyze and criticize why that's the case. I think many of us have a pretty good idea of why that's the case. So it is what it is. But it's currently spreading and it's spreading at alarming rates. And right now, today, well, today anyway, we got news from Governor Cuomo that New York City was shutting down indoor dining again. 
And that's sad, right? Because there's a lot of servers, bartenders, people who own businesses, landlords who own properties, where these businesses are that are going to suffer from this. On the other hand, obviously, we have to worry about the people who are getting infected with COVID. But I thought it was interesting. Cuomo initially said, look, most of the spread is occurring at household gatherings, some of it due to the holidays. Yet we're going to close indoor dining as a precaution. Whether you agree with that or not is your business. It's just sad to see that a lot of businesses and people who work there are going to be going unemployed, underemployed, or going out of business. It's going to put a damp dent in our economy. We already know we have a struggling economy. In several states across the country, there are lines for food and for holiday meals stretching around blocks and blocks and blocks akin to the Great Depression, if not worse in some instances, and I'm not saying that in a macro sense, I'm saying acutely right now, it's pretty bad. And the stimulus is held up in Congress because of the infighting regarding what type of package is going to be passed. Here's where you have to acknowledge where the Democrats are coming from. In their view, if they were to acquiesce, if they were to acquiesce on a stimulus package that didn't include enough aid for state and local governments or didn't include enough aid for unemployment insurance or didn't include enough aid to individuals, then they have doubts that any subsequent piecemeal package would ever be brought before the floor. And that's a valid concern. So what they're doing is they're threatening to hold government funding hostage, akin to the way Republicans held government funding hostage during the debt ceiling debates, although the two have nothing in common other than the mechanism used. I mean, substantively, there's completely different goals and completely different reasons for the holdup. But Democrats are using those mechanisms to their advantage to try to exert negotiating power. Republicans are, are fighting it, and so they passed the stopgap one-week measure, I believe, today to fund the government for a week while they continue to try to hammer out a stimulus package. Look, folks, Congress's primary job, despite all this infighting, nonsense, partisan bickering, is to serve the public, to do the job of the government, and to take care of what's going on now. And we need another stimulus package, period. State and local governments need it. The people need it. Struggling businesses need it. We need it. They've got to get this done. I understand the different fighting on both sides. Honestly, I understand both sides and why they're fighting, but it's got to get done. It's common sense stuff. It's common sense stuff. You don't have to overfund unemployment, but you don't have to underfund it. You don't have to overfund state and local governments. With state and local governments, 100% need aid, period. There's no getting around it. There's bipartisan people that are talking. It's got to get done. It hasn't got done yet, and that is a problem. But they're currently dealing with that. And now New York dining is closed indoors. It's going to hurt a lot of more, a lot more businesses. It's closed as of Monday. If you didn't know and you're planning on uh, going out to indoor dining next week, Monday, it's closed. In Jersey and in Boston, everywhere else I've heard, it's not the case yet. They're going off data that says that indoor dining is not the primary driver. Therefore, indoor dining will not be closed yet. But there's other restrictions that obviously remain in place. So overall, we remain in this COVID situation, and it's a tough one. And my heart goes out to all of you and, and your families and everybody else who's dealt with this, anybody who's lost anybody, anybody who's had to just cope with this in an ongoing perpetual. It seems perpetual now, right? And I've started this podcast during the lockdown, and now I continue it through the holiday season. This has been a crazy year. 
a really crazy year. So Greg's telling us that Pennsylvania's also shut down their indoor dining. So that's interesting. So now Jersey's the only one. So I would expect Jersey to shut down not soon after, right? If Pennsylvania and New York City's closed, eh. Murphy said no a couple days ago, but we'll see. We'll see. So we're looking at more rough times for business owners and workers, obviously for a reason, because of COVID, but it's, it's just sad all around. It's sad all around. Now, now I started this podcast during the lockdown, and um, it's been a crazy year. And it's, it's amazing that we're still dealing with it. One of the things that's interesting about COVID is the vaccines are starting to roll out now. They're starting to get approvals. There's plans to distribute them in various states, various ways. And we are now kind of in a holding pattern. The vaccine needs to take root and the vaccine needs to be at a critical mass of distribution for us to get back to normal or any semblance of normal. So, you know, the other issue that's going on is people don't trust the vaccine, right? And this is the thing. Look, there's some communities where I understand why they don't trust the vaccine. There's a historical pattern of discrimination and neglect in certain communities regarding medical research, and I understand that. But some of these communities are also the most vulnerable communities. So there needs to be an outreach. There needs to be an educational initiative to get these communities on board with taking the vaccine. Now, I already had COVID. I know you can maybe get it twice. Some people have, but a small fraction. Nonetheless, right, I'm going to get the vaccine because I think it's a good example for us to get the vaccine. Because the only way we're ever going to surpass this, the only way we're ever going to beat COVID, the only way we're ever going to get ahead of COVID ever, ever, is to take the vaccine and to participate in the vaccine distribution and to, you know, make a dent in COVID. So I'm going to take it, and it's just a shame that we're dealing with that now. And look, it's one thing to have legitimate reservations about the vaccine, especially if you're from a a certain group that has been uh, taken advantage of or lied to before. That's understandable 100%, and we need to find out how we can rectify that and assuage those concerns 100%. But on the other hand, if people are spreading false information about the vaccine, if people are not uh, honestly talking about the research that happened or how it got out so fast or why people should take it, then that is just incredibly irresponsible, not only to those who will die, not only to those who continue to suffer, but also to the society at large that is suffering in a macro sense because we haven't been able to, to counteract this virus yet. So as I, as I consistently do, I'm pushing for everybody to maintain, you know, logic and rationality and to continue to educate those around you on the vaccine. I encourage you to participate in taking it if, you know, personal decisions are personal decisions, but let's beat this thing. Let's beat it the best way we know how. Several American companies have worked their butts off to get us this thing. Let's go about it. Let's beat COVID. It's a shame that we're still dealing with it. I'm praying, guys, that after this new year, after this holiday season, we can be past this thing once and for all. I'm praying for it. I really am. Now, 
in the vein. This is the little transition. I'm, I'm not too bad, right? Nothing's written down. There's no notes. I'm just riffing. I'm just riffing. The music gives me a little inspiration. You guys give me a lot of inspiration, and I'm just riffing. But let me transition. Let me pivot. Okay. Fact is... And I, I definitely will. I want to talk about that. You gotta maybe you could call once once the calls come in after Rick's on because I'd like to hear that story. But Newark, Newark, New Jersey, where I live, Newark, New Jersey, by a website this week was named City of the Year. City of the Year. It was by Smart Cities Dive. That's a website that discusses different issues with, um, yeah, Nork, Nork, not Newark, Nork. Nork was named City of the Year by this website, Smart Cities Dive, and it's a, it's an interesting website. It's got a lot of uh, recognition. It delves into all these different. Um, Parameters of cities, it's analyses of cities and things that cities are doing. It reports city news. And, and the awards came out the end of this year. It's the end of 2020. And the city of the year, according to this website, was my home city of Newark, New Jersey. Now, why did they name Newark the, the city of the year? Well, here's why. This was a rough year, right? This was a tumultuous crazy year and every city in this country was exposed to at least some level of tumult every city in this country was exposed to it and they and analyzed well what city did really well with this what city had the resilience what city endured and they picked Newark. and why'd they do that why'd they do that well their reason was the pandemic hit us hard the pandemic hit us very hard and we persevered and had we persevered let me tell you what Newark did. So you have these restaurants that are struggling, obviously, as we just talked about, because of COVID, because of the closures. These restaurants were struggling mightily. One of the things Newark did, which was, which was dope, which was innovative, too. One of the things Newark did was they created this program called Newark Work, Working Kitchens. Newark Work, Working Kitchens. And what it was was we have various hospitals in the city. And the government of the city raised money and was able to fund restaurants throughout the, the course of the pandemic, was able to pay restaurants every day, every day was able to pay restaurants to make and supply food to frontline workers throughout the city every day and Newark is a populated city it's one of the major cities in the country so there's a lot of frontline workers whether you're talking about EMS fire police hospital workers nurses doctors there's a medical school here there's a dentistry school here the city helped those businesses through that initiative to stay afloat through the pandemic to keep people employed through the pandemic and to supply much needed food to frontline workers that was a a great initiative right it's an economically sound initiative it's a proactive initiative and that was huge and we continue to do it now and and i think newark deserves recognition for that and they got it by being declared city of the year the other thing that they mentioned was the unrest. The unrest that occurred earlier in the year. 
Um, and, and obviously, you know, there were a lot of different reasons why that unrest occurred. And look, the the you had Ahmad Aubrey, Aubrey, and that was a a big reason, a big a big catalyst for the protest. But then the, I think the biggest one after Ahmad Aubrey, the biggest one was George Floyd. And when George Floyd. When the the egregious video was was placed in the public, there was an obvious, rightfully so, uprising in the country, despite COVID, despite all the other things going on. And Newark was no different, right? There was a a an uprising of support for Mr. Floyd and against the injustice that was perpetrated upon him by people in Newark too. And one of the most inspiring things that I saw and that was recognized by this website in declaring Newark City of the Year was that the mayor of Newark marched with the protesters. They had a organized march in Newark. That there were no burning buildings. There were no broken windows. There was some graffiti here and there, some minor transgression, destruction of property here and there, but not much. And it wasn't just the administration of the city, right? It was partly the administration of the city, but it was also the people who lived here, residents who were proud of Newark, who call this city home, who in conjunction with the police, in conjunction with the mayor, in conjunction with all the stakeholders, banded together to prevent any kind of destructive uprising in the city of Newark, but more so the people of Newark who have taken ownership of it, which are predominantly people of color, said, we will be heard, we will be heard loud and clear. We will express our grievance, but we will not destroy our own property. We will not destroy the property of our neighbors. We will not destroy our chance at prosperity. We will persevere in a disciplined and responsible way. And Newark was brilliant at doing that. One of probably the biggest cities in the United States to have pulled that off as beautifully as it did. And that deserves a ton of credit. That deserves a ton, a ton of props, and it got it. Now, the reason that that becomes a transitionary conversation for this podcast tonight is there were other cities that perhaps don't have the same composition or complexion or both, might I say, that didn't have the same success. And that's going to lead me into a broader conversation about some of the things going on today. And look, I call out, I call them as I see them, right? Sometimes the left is a current event that I don't get. Sometimes the right is a current event that I don't get. Tonight is more left stuff coming at me. Look, Newark handled it so well, and Newark was, is a predominantly black city. It's, in, it's a city of color. The stakeholders, many of them are people of color. The concerns, many of them are the concerns of people of color, etc. And I'm constantly talking about how sometimes those not residing in those areas, not people of color themselves, not everybody, 
sometimes don't quite have a, a, a comprehensive grasp on some of the issues that need to be addressed in order to benefit those types of communities. And Will reached out to me today with this story, and we knew about Portland, right? One of the things that happened in Portland, he's in Portland now. One of the things that happened out there initially during this whole thing was that there were there were these protests, right? The the federal courthouse was under siege, and there were these, there was, you know, Seattle had the autonomous zone, but there was other, you know, attempts at autonomous zones in, in Portland. And one of the things was a woman in the middle of the street, and she was stripped down naked in front of the cops, and that went viral, and that was on the news, and this and that. And a leader in Portland, a, a civil rights leader, had come out and said, look, this movement, which initially started as a rallying cry due to George Floyd and due to these unjustified killings by police, this rallying cry that actually had the ears of America, this movement that had a lot of momentum to benefit people of color in this country and to benefit activists who have been at this forever was hijacked was hijacked by white activists who didn't seem to fully grasp what the underlying mission or the underlying driving factor was in the activism and protest to begin with when I posted that article by that black activist, I was shouted down primarily, primarily by white progressives, quote unquote, white liberals, telling me I didn't have a grasp on it and how dare I criticize activists. But it wasn't me criticizing activists, it was this African-American person who was a local resident to the city who was an activist himself for years who was calling it out. Now, this week, what Will brought to my attention was that there's this protest going on in Portland. Portland seems to keep having protests. And Portland is a majority white city. It's a very liberal city. And, and I don't... Look, Portland's a dope place from what I know. According to Will, it's a great place. From everything I hear, it's a great place. So I'm not disparaging Portland at all. But I find it interesting. It becomes almost a microcosm to me of this ongoing problem we have where predominantly white quote, activists or liberals consistently seem to say that they're doing the right thing and they're pushing for all the right reasons and the right things, but they seem to miss the mark. And what Will brought to my attention was there's this story out of Portland now, which is the, it's called the Red House protests, I think. And I may be, my verbiage may be a tiny bit off. I think it's generally, it's, it's a Red House is the rallying cry. And because it's literally a Red House in a neighborhood in Portland. And it was foreclosed upon, I think, a few years ago. Now, the family that owns the house, the family that owns the house is now getting all these protesters to rally around them. And now Portland police. So 2018, it was foreclosed upon. Now they're just getting to the eviction, actual physical eviction. People in Portland are basically 
forming a zone around it where they're not allowing the authorities to evict this, these people. They are crying out that it's an injustice, that they won't allow it. Police and authorities are reporting that there, some of the people there have armed themselves, that there is the chance of violence. And look, these are predominantly white crowds who are saying that they're standing up to the system, standing up to the greedy banks, all of these things. All of these things. Yet, yet, if you were to research this situation in Portland, what you would find is that the family in question, they took out a loan on the equity of the house years ago because their son, while in high school, was driving a car with several people in the car, had cocaine on his person, was not paying attention admittedly, was on the phone, ran a red light, hit a couple who was an elderly couple, injured the woman in the car, and killed, killed the old man in the car that he hit. He T-boned this car. And that's, he T-boned this car. Now, I'm not saying anything negative about this, this kid, but he, somebody died because of his carelessness. Somebody died because of his negligence as a driver. So his family, who lives in this red house, they took out an equity loan on the house to pay for his legal fees. And he made it so that he wasn't in jail. And he had to serve some, you know, he had some penalties and things, but they spent it on his legal defense. Even though, you know, a man died. And the man died, sometimes if somebody dies and you have to take out money for a legal defense, you know what you're doing. You understand the loan you're taking out. And you know what you're doing. Now, all of these people descended upon this block, and, and Will points out to me, because I'm not from Oregon, that this is a predominantly historically black block. And all of these people, predominantly people who are not of color, are descending upon it and getting almost violently defiant with the authorities for the eviction. Now, not only was this loan taken out on the equity of the home, and not only was this foreclosure action finished two years ago, and not only was the loan taken out for a reason that we all understand why it was, not only did this family knowingly take out this equity loan to defend their son, who, you know, because of his carelessness, somebody died. This family owns a second home in the same neighborhood, and they've been living in that second home during this entire process during this entire process. So the loan was taken out in the early 2000s. The eviction took place two years ago. They had plenty of notice that this was coming. And they have another home that they're living in right now. They live in another home right now down the block. Yet there's masses of people getting mass hysterical galvanization in place to... Fight the authorities from conducting a fair eviction, and it becomes this rallying cry, acting like they're in the moral right, acting like they are morally superior to the authorities in the big evil banks. Yet these are the underlying circumstances. And Will told me that if he even brought up any of these objective facts or even dared broach the conversation, that he might be accused of being a right-wing proud boy just for doing it. And here's the thing. 
I don't have any doubt in my mind that that's the case. Let me tell you about, well, we've argued here and there. Now, we're, we've known each other for years. This is my dude. But we've had a little back and forth sometimes on things because he's a, he's a farther left person. This is a Bernie supporter. This is a Vermont-educated, uh, Portland, Oregon domiciled individual who's super progressive-minded and has nothing but, you know, moral activism and, and progressivism in his soul. This is a good man. And for him to tell me, look, Larry, what do you think of this? Because I think maybe this almost militant activism is premised upon something that may be a flawed or a distorted narrative. And he's right. He's right. And I just one of the things that I think is bothering me today, guys, is... You know, I'm agitated for a lot of reasons. I told you, right? But one of the reasons is many of us have aspirations, right? We want this country to be more equitable. We want to rectify past and present ills. We want to move forward as a society in a better way. We want a more perfect union. And we want to help the communities most persecuted and most at risk and most suffering from the legacy and policies of this nation. And one of the biggest impediments, in my estimation, one of the biggest impediments to our progress is people getting so far ahead of themselves and so defiantly almost militant upon the premises of situations which are factually flawed or are, in truth, distorted. And none of us can can stand by that with a straight face. And we are the ones who care about rectifying these problems. Imagine the people who are on the fence or the people who don't want to rectify them. We are giving them no reason to come join us in actual rectification of problems. What we are giving them is the opposite. We're giving them a rallying cry to counteract the things that we're asking for. We are undermining our own credibility when we continue to double down on these flawed narratives and these flawed issues. And the reason I bring up Newark to juxtapose against Portland is, well, look at Newark, right? That's a community that is in the crosshairs of discrimination. That's a community that's majority-minority, predominantly people of color. And that city, my city, seems to have a better grasp and handle on things that are coming up because they live with it every day themselves. So the objectivity is more real, and it comes through so well. So it makes sense. And here's what I want to talk about. Now, this is none of the following has anything to do with Will. Will brought the Oregon story to my attention, so he might disagree with me on some of this. He might agree. I don't know. But this is a segue into this. I'll tell you this. First of all, on my block. Now I live in a in a in a in a nice, you know, a, a nice neighborhood in Newark, right? But it's still got its problems. It's still, you know, got its problems. It's old urban northeastern America and it's still got its problems. There's poverty here. There's issues here. 
If you were to walk out my front door where you're looking out my window right there with the Christmas lights and you were to walk across that street and you were to walk over to University Heights or you were to walk to the Ironbound, you would have walked to The Rock, Prudential Center for those who don't know, or Military Park down Broad Street, et cetera, et cetera. You'd be fine. I mean, that's, that's a rapidly, that's a nice downtown area. And there's a lot of bars, there's a lot of things there, not during COVID, but there is. But if you were to walk out my back door, it's still a nice area. You're going towards Lincoln Park, and my buddy Jared, who hosts a great podcast, by the way, which I'll have him on uh, at some point, too, to discuss his podcast. I was a guest there when he started it up, and it's really getting huge. But if you were to walk out my back, the back door of my building, and you were to walk up Court Street, you were to walk up MLK over there, and you were to walk up that area... Washington Street. It's a little. It's a little less. There's there's more there that isn't as developed. Okay. Anyway, but that doesn't matter, right? There's a liquor store in the corner of Washington and Hill Street. That's my neighborhood. That's my block. I go to that liquor store every now and then. There's a bodega down at the gas station at Washington and Court. My ex-girlfriend used to walk up to that bodega anytime. It's open 24 hours. She'd be there at 11 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning, whatever. And I would, you know, somebody I, I, I love, I cared about, still care about, who would walk to this bodega at 1 in the morning. Well, well, the reason I bring this up is because in my city, I heard gunshots last night. You could hear them. Pop, 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 pop. I heard gunshots outside my window, and it's not the first time I heard gunshots. And then I read the news, and somebody was shot last night right at, right on my block, right on Washington and Court, right where my ex-girlfriend used to go to the bodega in the middle of the night, right where I drive, I traverse that intersection every day, every day of my life. The person who was shot was a person of color. As almost everybody in this country who is shot all the time, who is the victim of a crime, I wouldn't say almost everybody, but statistically those more at risk to be victims, this was a person of color. We consistently skew, like I'm talking about this, I'll get to the point about the juxtaposition at Newark and Portland, I promise you, I always get to that, my point. But these are the people that are constantly suffering, and there's so much lack of emphasis on that. So some of my perspective that sometimes people on the left might get a little agitated about, my perspective's born out of actually being in a community that suffers from these things, has to deal with these things, right? I'm not coming from the outside trying to prescribe a solution. I'm talking from the inside, right? And even I, as a white male, don't have to face the same challenges as my colleagues who are of color. And that's something I'm acutely aware of. My level of privilege weighs in on this. My level of privilege is a relevant factor here. And I'm aware of that, too. But I'm speaking from all of these perspectives to try to legitimately rectify the situation we currently face. And protesting for somebody who rightfully got evicted and lives in another house is not the way to do that. Now, where am I going with this? Well, that's one example. What else happened this week? What else happened this week that got me agitated? A woman, Aisha McFadden, Aisha McFadden of Jersey City, New Jersey, was gunned down in the street, was gunned down in the street, and she 
tragically lost her life to gun violence in Jersey City. She leaves behind four small children. She was murdered. Murdered. A woman was murdered by a man with a gun in Jersey City. Her name is Aisha McFadden. The accounts as of now are that he sexually assaulted her, grabbed her backside. She took issue to that, and when she confronted him about what he had done, he murdered her. Four of her children will grow up without a mother. Four children of color. A woman of color was gunned down in the streets of Jersey City. And the perpetrator was arrested, so I understand people are not going to protest that he'd be arrested. He's been arrested. He'll be held accountable. However, this was a senseless act of sexual aggression and a senseless act of violence against a woman of color, a mother, and I'm just not seeing the same traction, not in fundraising, not in awareness, not in anything, as I'm seeing with other cases. Now... I shared this story several times, just like I share every story. Not because I think it's a, it's a unique case per se, uh, sadly. Not because I think it's necessarily going to get national traction, but because I figured that since the majority of my friends and the majority of those who listen to me and follow me are people in New Jersey and are people who say that they're activists for certain causes and are activists against violence and loss and advocates for people of color and victims of color. I truly thought I would get more people to share the story, but more importantly, to donate to a fundraiser that went to support her four children. Now, I don't have a lot of money. I donated $100. I donated $100 which is what I could come up with, and then I shared the link. But only one other person, only one other person, and this person is another, this person happens to be a black woman who's constantly talking about these issues, so I'm not surprised. She was the only one who shared that link. The only one who shared that link, the only one who commented on it at all. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that I get the nuance, right? People are going to comment and talk more about What's in the news are going to come and talk more about what's not being prosecuted. This killer was being prosecuted. I understand that. But what's my point? My point is, with the shooting on my block and with this woman, Aisha McFadden, say her name, losing her life to violence, senseless violence on the street, the fact is that we are consistently and constantly losing life to violence in this country. And we're losing it because of societal problems like inequality, poverty, lack of adequate housing, the legacy of redlining. We are losing it for all these reasons. Lack of fair housing initiatives, lack of uh, educational equality, lack of economic equality, lack of job opportunities, all these reasons. But as I consistently say, it's about the roots, which are all the things I just mentioned. And I just wish that more people who, who proclaimed, especially white people, 
more white people like those fortifying the Red House in Portland who say that they'll basically die for the cause. They will militarize themselves and stand up against the system for a family that has a house down the road. I wish more of those people would stand up for the system, not not militarize themselves, but care every day about the lives lost in cities across this country that are lives of color. I wish they would donate that Red House family who has a house down the road who rightfully got evicted, they have three hundred thousand plus dollars in their GoFundMe account. Three hundred plus thousand dollars. Aisha McFadden, last I checked, has eleven thousand dollars, and I only got one share when I shared it on my Facebook, and we live we live down the block from her children. And we got eleven thousand and one share. And the Red House people are militarizing three hundred thousand and shares in the probably millions. That's a prime example. You want to juxtapose two situations that don't mean anything, that don't have any correlation with each other? I'll juxtapose those two. I understand the flawed logic of it. I call it all the time, but you want to play that game? Let's play that game right there. Those things bother me. And and Rick points out you didn't see the post. That's a good point, Rick, because uh, you know what? Facebook and their algorithms, I bet they don't even share some of that. That's another problem. It's not just the people on my page. It's these companies, too. They feed off whatever's mass hysterically viable. They feed off whatever the big news story is. So these lives go overlooked. Yet other things get notoriety because they feed off whatever we click on. It's a sick state of affairs. Oh, it's sick. And this is another reason I'm agitated. It's another reason I'm agitated. Now, the last thing I'll talk about with this whole situation. Now, look, you could be for the death penalty. You could be against the death penalty. Whatever. That's your right. And I understand both sides. I truly, 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 truly do. I do. But this, so we had, look, Trump has accelerated the death penalty. He's accelerated federal executions. That's what he's done. Whether you approve of it or not, look, I I approve of it. I got to be honest with you. Federal executions, a lot of these people committed heinous crimes. You have the Boston bomber on the list. You have Dylan Roof, who executed people in a black church while they prayed with him. He's on the list. Now, you had this individual who was, un, you know, it's, it's sad. He was, unfortunately, he was, he was put to death this week, Brandon Bernard. Now, Brandon Bernard was involved in a crime, though, right? He, when he was 18 years old, there was a religious couple who were down in his state. I think they were from Iowa. I think this was in Texas. I could be wrong. He and his friends asked for a ride from this couple. This couple was young, too. They were 18 or 19 years old. They asked for a ride from this couple. The couple agreed to give them a ride. And when they got in the car, they put a gun to their head. They robbed them. Then they shot them in the head. This individual, Brandon Bernard, set the car on fire with the bodies inside. Although it turns out the female victim was not dead yet because she died of smoke inhalation, not a gunshot wound. So it's possible she might have burned alive. He was put to death. And now look, you could, by all accounts, by all accounts, 
Mr. Bernard was reformed. By all accounts, he had lived a better life since he'd been incarcerated on that murder charge. By all accounts, he was trying to repent for what he had done. That's fine. But the fact is that the, the courts and the juries had put him to death for that crime, and that was a heinous crime. And the family of the victim still wanted to proceed with the execution. Some Two people lost their lives for no reason and then were burned alive, one woman. And that's, look, Kim Kardashian came out supporting him, saying she's crying over the fact that he was executed. She's, she's beside herself with how effed up the system is. That's all valid. She can say that all she wants. But here's what bothers me. Aisha McFadden, her four children are out here with no mother. Her four children are out here. And there's children like that across this country, children of color who are victims of violence, which is the derivative of racist society and systemic persecution. Kim K has money out the wazoo. Kim K has activism out the wazoo. Kim K has a platform. Where is she advocating for these other people the way she advocated for him? It's not that he doesn't deserve to be advocated for, but he was a convicted murderer who set somebody on fire. These children are innocent. This woman was murdered for being grabbed. Where are people like Kim Kardashian? Where are these activists for everybody else? I'm not saying you have to choose one or the other. I'm not saying you can't advocate for people like Brandon Bernard. I'm saying, why can't you advocate as hard for other people who are victims as much as you advocate for those convicted? That's what I want to know. Where's that disconnect, right? Liberal anti-police sentiment is not always synonymous and not always the right way to advocate for people of color who are in trouble. Period. Period. And it's a rightful thing to call out. And you could get on me. You could criticize me. But just like I called out those attorneys general early this week, I speak for myself. I am, will never go against anywhere that I am or, or against any ethical code that I've attested to, but I will have the courage to call out hypocrisy and I will have the courage to call things out when I see them for what they are because I truly care about what's right. And if you want to pile on me for that, then be my guest and that's fine, but I will never stop being honest or courageous in the face of hypocrisy or narratives that have been distorted. I won't. And I just wonder where Kim's advocacy is for these other people. I just wonder. She's just one example. It's not just about Kim. It's about those people in Portland. It's about everybody. Now, the Newark Anti-Violence Coalition, the Jersey City Anti-Violence Coalition, these are groups comprised of people of color who reside in these cities. And those people, those people... Those people are out here every day fighting this fight. Those people are living in these neighborhoods. Those people are out here advocating for victims. Those people are crying for attention and help. They want you. They're not crying for it. I don't want to put them down. They're courageous. They're standing up for They want help. They want rectification. But they are largely ignored by Facebook, by people on it, by those in the media. They are ignored, and that's a problem. And I'm sick and tired of having to tolerate that problem and act as if it's wrong to speak up out against that problem or to act as if there aren't other ideas about how to rectify issues. There aren't other ideas about how to deal with violent crime. Now, the other individual who was executed tonight was Mr. Bourgeois. I think his name was Bourgeois. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Now, rightfully so, I don't see an outcry for him, nor should there be. He was, he's executed tonight. 
He murdered his two-year-old daughter. Another two-year-old, this person of color, he murdered her. He burned her feet when she couldn't potty train correctly. He took custody of her from her mother because she had child support issues. Another product of the system, which won't allow adequate employment. This little girl was burned, strangled, thrown against a wall, and sexually abused by her father. And he was executed tonight. And I'll tell you what, I'm fine that he was executed tonight. I'm not losing any sleep over it. You can be against the death penalty. My state doesn't have the death penalty. Therefore, I know as an attorney in this state, it's not my place to push for it or whatever. It doesn't exist. And I'll uphold that legal standard in this state. But nonetheless, as a personal per, you know, citizen, I'm fine with that guy being executed. He murdered his two-year-old daughter. He tortured her for weeks or months before he did it. I'm not upset. There were people comparing Brandon Bernard to Dylan Roof saying Brandon Bernard was executed, but Dylan Roof is alive. That's the kind of ludicrous stuff I'm talking about. Dylan Roof is on death row. He's going to be put to death. In fact, the only reason Dylan Roof probably won't be put to death anytime soon is because liberals are going to take over. And that's why Dylan Roof is not going to be executed because liberals are going to take it over. Not because conservatives are being racist about it, but because they're not going to put Dylan Roof to death by the time it happens. So you could compare Dylan Roof to Brandon Bernard, but it's a ludicrous argument. They're both on death row. They're both alive at the time of the crime. They were apprehended without being killed. And then they're both on death row. They're very similar, not different. Brandon Bernard killed white people. Dylan Roof killed black people. Now, Dylan Roof was a racist motive. Brandon Bernard was not a racist motive. That's the difference. But nonetheless, they're both going to death row. They're both going to be put to death for murdering people of a different race. So why would anybody say that they're the same and, and, and have a straight face and not expect to be called out? That I don't understand. Now, I saw Oak, Oakley. I say Oakey. I know his real name. He has a... He's got a little clever way of putting his name in there, so I won't call out his real name, but he's one of my... It's like, you know, you ever go back in, like, history, like those movies where you got, like, Star Wars, like, we came up together and we, like, draw our lightsaber or whatever. One of the best people to ever argue with me on a consistent basis and to be damn good at it and to beat my ass once in a while is this guy. And we, we have a long history. We're, we're boys. This dude knows his shit. He brings up the five justifications of sentencing and, and whether the death penalty serves them. I think it does. I think it serves a deterrence, although the statistics I know that may run contrary to that. Certainly serves retribution. Now, whether we think retribution is a valid, you know, justification for punishment in a modernized society is a completely other conversation. But look, I'm not somebody who's zealous about the death penalty, but I do believe the death penalty in certain situations should happen. Now, do I believe Brandon Bernard at his age, given his involvement in the crime, was the type of candidate I'm talking about for death? Honestly, probably not. Brandon Bernard is probably not the type of person that if I had my way in a vacuum, I would say should be put to death. Uh, you know, but the people have spoken, the jury's spoken, everybody's spoken. I, st I don't think I would. People like Bourgeois with murdering his two-year-old daughter? Yes, 100%. 100%. I say he should be put to death. I mean, that's, that's fine. That's the exact type of case where somebody should be put to death. Interestingly, 
several years ago, they ruled that uh, unless there's a murder or some type of federal treason, which kind of didn't make sense, but unless there's a murder at the state level, you can't put anybody to death. But the, the case that that was based on was a, a case in the South. I believe it was Louisiana. could have been Kentucky. I think it was Louisiana. Could be wrong. It was an individual who's the stepfather of an eight-year-old girl who raped her so violently that he destroyed her insides, destroyed her womb. She could never have kids. He admitted to it. He admitted to it that night. It was disgusting. It was brutal. It was violent. It was painful. And Louisiana put him to death. But the Supreme Court said since she wasn't dead, he couldn't be put to death. I kind of disagreed with that. Obviously, I'll uphold it because that's what the Supreme Court said. That's the law of the land. But I, I kind of personally disagreed with it because I'm like, well, some things are worse than death, right? That trauma and not being able to ever, re- ever procreate and living with that trauma is, is maybe worse than death. I don't know. So I didn't agree with that. But the death penalty is touchy, and you could be on either side of it and make a really good argument, in my opinion. But I, all I'm saying is, all I'm saying is when we really discuss these issues, especially criminal justice issues— we got to stay honest. we got to stay honest and, and, and keep our eye on the prize. What are we really advocating for and why and who? And are sometimes people rightfully being called out for some level of hypocrisy or for some level of distortion or misunderstanding as to what they're actually supposed to be talking about? And Hanin, good point. Right, right. He killed his grandkids. That's death. And and this is this is this is what I love about this case. And I was agitated at the beginning of it because there, you know certain people weren't logged on that were supposed to be. And yada yada. I'll get over it being a little bit of a baby, but you know whatever. I'm entitled. I've been doing this all year. But look, the fact is that so many people that are so intelligent and want to talk about these things in the nuanced way that we talk about them without being purists dare to come on this podcast every week dare to engage each other dare to engage me in this objective conversation and it's great i wish it was bigger hopefully we'll get it bigger but i've met so many awesome people along the way who are are high caliber people and the fact that we can engage this way is, is productive. I'm still going to create that Facebook group so that we can all just engage on these topics without fear of, of retribution for being objective and discussing things. I'm going to create a closed group for that purpose, and you're all going to be invited. But I, I just love the conversation. I had to get some of that out, and a lot of that comes from you guys engaging with me all week about these issues that kind of put me in the, in the mood to even get it out. It's out. I'm feeling a little better. I'm feeling like we got a point across. I I really think we can all take these things and move forward with them and make a positive impact where we say we want to, right? We should advocate for all kinds of things, criminal justice reform, police reform. We should advocate for equality, all these things. But keep in mind the considerations. Keep in mind our perspectives. Keep in mind that... We can't just address 10% of the victims or 5% or 20% of the victims. We have to address 100%. We have to put all our, all our effort and care and consideration into everybody suffering if we want to say it with a straight face and we want to truly, truly be the activists we want to be and claim to be. We truly, truly do. And that's important. 
Now I'm gonna play back a couple of the songs here. I didn't I didn't get to really tell you, but that was in early in the show that was Christmas rapping. Um and uh, obviously because we're getting in the Christmas mood a little bit, not everything was, was in the Christmas mood, but you know, had the Christmas rapping, but then I had the, the original composition, Sleigh Ride into the Solstice, which is my instrumental composition, which I hope you'll enjoy it. I'm going to post it again later, whatever. It's just my shameless self-promotion. Hey, it's my podcast. But I'm going to play that song one more time, take a quick, quick intermission, and when I get back, we're going to completely pivot. We're going to completely change tone because Rick is going to come on. He's the special guest for tonight. And look, this is the thing about Rick. I usually re- I read The New Yorker. All right, it's a great magazine. One of the things that I find the most fascinating about the New Yorker is that they have a section, stories that pop up every so often. And it's personal history, they call it, right? And it's literally just people out there, exceptional people across the country, across the world, who have personal stories and histories that are interesting. And I think there's always something to gain from that. Now, with Rick, Rick is a, a, a constant and consistent contributor to this podcast. And he's a constant and consistent contributor to our public dialogue. And he can converse with many of you on many different occasions. And the fact is that... Well, I read, and and Will, to answer your question, I read a lot of different things, but The New Yorker, it's hard to keep up with, but I just, I try to focus on that because it's such comprehensive journalism, and I read everything, but, you know, the Daily News, the New York Post, uh, we'll talk about that later, but, (laughs) oh, and look, but anyway, Rick is going to come on, and I think, since he's such a contributor to these things, and he has a a certain ideological bent, but he's he's always a facilitator of conversation, I think everybody might be able to benefit from somebody like him and, and a little bit of his life history. And I'm very excited to kind of go down the journey with him and to interview him tonight and to talk about his life's history and his journey. And I think we'll all get something from it and learn a little bit more about Rick, who's a constant contributor. So once I play the song and I come back, I look forward to having Rick call up and we'll talk. And then once Rick and I talk, I'll open up the uh, phones for everybody to call in and have whatever conversation they'd like. But please stay with us. I'll be right back. And thanks for joining us already. It's been a pleasure so far, even though I've been a little animated. It's been a pleasure, and I'll be right back. on the phone. I'm excited about this. Rick has been playing coy all week. Oh, I don't know. I, I'm, I, I want to eat another drink. I don't want to do, you know. Rick's excited. I don't care what he says. He's ready for this. I'm ready for it. Rick, call up. Let's do this. Rick from Phoenix. I am not excited. <laughs> Rick from Phoenix, Arizona, brother. How are you feeling on this Friday night in Christmas season? I'm good, man. I'm good. First thing I want to do is I want to apologize for being one of the people that pushed your buttons this week. (laughs) Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's not... Because... 
No, no, because sometimes you forget when you're in the middle of shit, right? That you that there are other things going on and other stress factors and for me it was just like reaching out in a like a boredom kind of thing. Yes. Kind of punching at you in yes. a friendly way. Yeah, I do know. And yes. I, yeah, I didn't realize the impact it would have, you know, psychologically overall. You know, sometimes we forget what impact our words have on our on our friends. Right. And people we care about. So. Well, I appreciate that, brother. I appreciate that. Either. Um, all right. So let me ask you this first before we get into everything. How, when Christmas time kind of comes in Arizona, is it is it still it it gets cold at night, right? But like, does it, is the season different at all or no? Uh, yeah, it's cold. So it is cold. <laughs> but I'm saying, is it colder? It's colder than usual, though. Yes, it's colder than usual. But this year, I mean, yesterday it rained, so it was chilly. The day before that, it was 82, I think. Right. Which is weird for us, even. Okay. Okay. So it's a little cooler. So it's still a season. It's still a different season in a way. But I'm just, I'm only asking because I'm looking outside. I got the Christmas lights, and it's just a random question. But yeah, no, we have two, we have two seasons here: hot and not so hot. <laughs> right. That makes sense. All right, so listen, here's the thing. You've been an awesome contributor. Like you, Just so people know the personal history, you and I connected like on the Internet through basically music. Uh, I put out music. You, were, you liked the music. We, I had podcasts. We started conversing a lot about politics, things like that. And we've, been, we've known each other for a very long time. I mean, I think. Yeah, it's been a long time, man. I, I think probably over 10 years, to be honest. I mean, it's, Yeah, about, about that. Yeah, at least 10, because that's when I met my now wife and girlfriend was 10 years ago and I knew you then yeah so it makes sense because I recall doing like a photo shoot for one of the old podcasts and you were there like I know I know I judged some of my life by ex-girlfriends I remember one ex-girlfriend I had you were around that was 2010 or 11 man so that's like it is about 10 years pretty cool yeah so isn't that interesting the internet brings people together in that way we've literally known each other for that long yet we live completely separately uh across the country we haven't met in person yet although we do know each other you'll be coming over here soon hopefully once this covid thing's over meeting everybody and kind of taking a tour so listen that's just the background on us you're a huge contributor to the podcast any listener to the podcast knows you anyway people on my facebook know you well for probably that long too um yeah some of them so let's just start like here's the deal so let's i want to just you're an interesting person and every time you call there's some tidbit that emerges about your experience and who you are and things that are just always interesting. So I thought maybe we'd sit down on this kind of Christmassy episode and talk about you and your personal history just to kind of shed even more light on it. And I'm sure we'll learn a lot more about this country, this society, and things you've you know, gone through through that prism. So first off, are you? Do you consider yourself? Are you Gen X or are you Baby Boomer? Are you right in, on that cusp? I'm, I'm definitely Gen X. Gen X. I am first. I am first of the Gen X. Gotcha. Like you know, Highlander, right? That's me. I'm the first. Yes. <laughs> so you're early Gen X, which is which is late sixties, early seventies. Yeah, mid mid sixties. That, that's exactly right. I'm right on the cusp there, which seems to be another aspect of my life all the way across the board as well. I'm on the cusp of fucking everything. Yes. So so you're on the cusp of that because my father was 1960. That's technically boomer, but late boomer. He's, he's a boomer. No, yes. For sure. And you're an early Gen X, so that's interesting. That shapes probably a lot yeah. of you. Now you, yeah, we, paved, we paved the way for Gen X, my my age group. Yes. So go ahead. So you are. Let me ask you this. So you, you're in Arizona, and you, you grew up in Arizona, right? In Phoenix? For the most part, yes. 
part, yes. Okay. Your family history, you are German and Italian, is that correct? That is correct. So, as far as I know. Yeah, so tell me about your family a little bit. Like, not, like, super deep into it, but how'd you wind up in Phoenix, you know, and, and with that heritage? We think in Jersey, which is definitely inaccurate. I know it's inaccurate, but it's just funny. We think Italians pretty much just live in New York, New Jersey, with a couple in Chicago and one or two in, in St. Louis, and that's it. So just, just honestly curious, like, how'd your family wind up there? And I know you've referenced your German side a couple times with how they got over here. I think it's interesting. So tell us. That, 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 okay, so that's who I grew up with. I grew up on the German side. I didn't know my real father, right? I okay. didn't know my real father until I was 28. Okay. So I had no ties with that, right? Right. I grew up in the German side. I grew up with a bunch of short, blonde people that <laughs> didn't understand me. Right, right. right. That's interesting, yes. So but your father was right, Italian. I absorbed You're... that logic. I absorbed that Germanic stoicism. Yes. For lack of a better word. Yes. Because that's what it was. I mean, uh, I think we talked about this before. My grandmother didn't tell me she loved me. I knew she loved me, but she didn't tell me she loved me until she was way old and couldn't live on her own anymore and came to live with me and my ex-wife. Wow. And so that's the first time she told me she loved me. And it, and it had super fucking impact because of that, right? Mm-hmm. I always knew I always knew she loved me. I mean, she treated me wonderfully, probably because, uh, you know, I'm like a, a legitimate bastard, right? There's no father's name on my birth certificate. I'm 100% bastard. So um, I was raised in that family. They came here. Their parents brought them over to escape the rise of the Weimar Republic, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Hitler, and they moved to Missouri. So that was in the thirties, the thirties, forties. Thirties, I'm gonna say thirties, mid thirties, maybe mid thirties. Makes sense. The up, the the upcoming of Hitler. Yes. Yeah. So they moved. Tell me. So yeah. Missouri, you said. They bailed out early uh, from Germany and came here. Yeah, and that's and that's my grandmother and my grandfather's family who did not know each other then, but they both yes same situation. They both left and they went to Missouri because apparently the rich farmland mm -hmm. appealed to them. Both of their families were farmers. They still have massive, not massive amounts, but decent amounts of land in Missouri. So my grandfather, then mm -hmm. when he was of age. Um, went to war, went to the, you know, fight the war against his own people. World War Two. Yes, okay. World War II. Yep. And him and my grandmother met, and my grandmother was a little bit of a wild child, which I found out much later, but she met him, and I, I think what she told me was he had nice eyes, and he could, he wasn't much to look at, but he had nice <laughs> eyes, and he could dance. Okay, that's good. That, that makes sense. And, and they have a great picture of them at a USO back in World War Two. That's dancing, which is probably my favorite thing in the whole entire world. That's amazing. That, um, and, and that's another so, thing, just aside. They connected. They had six kids, which turns out they were the slackers. All the rest of their family had ten kids. Oh, my God. And uh, they moved out here to Arizona because the father came out here. His buddy from the war mm -hmm. was a mechanic out here and offered him a job. And so he moved his entire family out here on that premise. Got right? you. Yes. To go to work with his buddy at this uh, auto mechanics place. Because he was Army Air Corps. He uh, did uh, airplane mechanics in war. And this is why, just to pause, I mean, this is this is why I love this kind of stuff. And the reason I there? say that is, yeah, can you hear me? Can you hear me, Rick? 
Can you hear me? Oh, sorry, man. Because before I tried to interject too, and you didn't hear me. So now you hear me. Sorry for the technical difficulties, everybody. But Rick, this is with the delay. With the delay, I can walk over to my computer. Right. But no. So this is what I was saying. Was this is why I think this this type of story is so interesting too, because the generational thing. And and you're you always allude to this, but this is true, right? The generational American experience, where you're coming from. You know, your grandfather fought, like you know, World War Two, and you guys they went out to Arizona because his buddy from the war was a mechanic and get him a job. These are the type of American experiences that that our generation doesn't necessarily, you know, we're, we're once removed from it. And it's a different America, as you always say. So it's just, it's just interesting. So that was your mother's parents who moved to Arizona? That's correct. And, and like I said, my grandma was a little wild. Apparently my mother was a little wild because she had me when she was 16. Okay. And that was in 65. So, you know, that was frowned upon. Yes. Um, now, were they religious, your German side, or no? Right. Were they religious or no? Oh, yeah, very Catholic. Okay, so they were very Catholic. Your mother was young. Keep yeah. going. Okay, so so and I'm listening. I'm listening. <laughs> so, so, she, so she had me, and, you know, my grandma being who she was, super cool in her stoic German way, it just accepted that. And, and as a result, me, and then I have one other cousin who, whose mother was pregnant out of wedlock mm-hmm. and didn't get married even. Mm-hmm. And uh, so him and I were always treated differently by my grandmother. She, she was like compensating for a lack of a father, right? You mean that by being more strict, more, more involved, more what? More, more involved. More, okay. I, I guess more loving as far as okay. the Germans. Yes. So, but, but more favoritism, which is what the other aunts eventually complained about, all the way up into when my grandma came to live with me. <laughs> Makes sense. So now your mother, though, was she in, in the, the sibling order herself? Was she younger than most of her siblings, older? Where was she in the order? She was right, she was, she was right about the middle. Okay, okay. So, you, so, right. and so back then, the basic premise was she went to my biological father and was he, he was given the ultimatum you have to you, and he's 17 at this time right right you have to marry her or or you can't see her anymore that was the ultimatum wow. and obviously at 17 he's like well i'm not getting married so right that's that let me ask you this do you want to go into your father biological father now or do you think it would come in better later in the conversation when you meet him uh, because i would ask a, a better a little later okay. because it's not he's not a significant factor gotcha. other than the interesting nature versus nurture argument right? yes yes that's why so i'm that's why i'm asking you so let's wait on that so let's so now you're born you, your grandmother's a big influence in your life you're in phoenix and and this yeah. is the mid you probably what you remember is late 60s early 70s first of all and and intersperse this with your life story too as we go through it but what was phoenix like in that era because yes it was older at the time but we've talked about us having this perception as this western frontier town no it's not it's been an established city but it's 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 almost you know it's like 50 years 70 years it's it's old now 50 years ago what was phoenix like and what was your life like as a young child it was less hot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was more. It was more of a cohesive. I, I don't want to say mellow because that's 
that's not exactly right. But but people out here are mellower because it's so fucking hot, right? Right. You, you don't you don't want to get excited when it's 110 <laughs> degrees. Right. 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 And and I mean things were way different. But we were, in my impression as a kid, we were a big city, right? Mm-hmm. We were a big city. Mm-hmm. We weren't. We weren't L.A., we weren't New York, we weren't even Newark. Right, right. But for, considering that the city had already only been around, what, we've been a state since, was it 1912? Yeah, I think it was early 20th century, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah it is early, definitely early 20th century, but but it was a big, for me, this was my first experience with the city. Right. But, but the police cars used to be like tan and white, so they blended in. It was a, it was a completely different vibe and like we talked about before you know Mexican culture was a huge thing here it was it was just a given it wasn't yes. even looked at like frowned upon because it had always been here right let me ask you about that too as you go into that so there was a heavy Mexican influence culturally in Phoenix as a child for you you were a Catholic kid which Mexicans are obviously mostly Catholic but you were a white German kid what was was there is was Phoenix segregated and I don't mean lawfully I mean was it was it segregated like just naturally was it not segregated at all when you went to school were you were there a lot of other white kids that were Catholic were there mostly Mexican was it a, a even mix I mean what was your neighborhood like what was that what was that like well it was it, it was and and I brought this up numerous times as well it it was class. Everything is separated by class here right. because we came later, right? We didn't have, you know, going back to visit my grand, when my grandparents came up in Missouri, it was shocking to me how, and I'm sure Jersey is probably sort of like this as well. There's like the German sector, right? There's mm-hmm. the Irish sector. Yep. They have their own church. They have their own community. That was surprising to me, right, as a 20-something-year-old at that point. Okay. To see that. Because here, the Mexicans had always been here, yes. and we came in later, Yes. and it was always an accepted thing. And, and I wouldn't say it's a, it's a 50-50 split, but it was never a consideration, Yes, I guess. yes. Right? It just, it, it's just what it was. Because, Rick, I can tell you even here, the different sections, even though they've changed over the years— they still, you can yeah. still pinpoint where in Newark the Italians were, where the Germans were, where that. It's bigger here with that, and, and I'm saying, I, yeah. I hear your contrast. It wasn't as big there to the point that when you no. came back a little bit east, you were surprised by it. Very interesting. It was class. It was all about class. You know, your your monetary class here, because, like for instance, my biological father thought my grandparents were rich because they lived north of a certain point of town, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. My, my grandparents were not rich at right. all, but compared to where he was coming up, apparently, right. they were. Right. And it was all so, class. So you, so every sector was racially mixed. It was all class that mattered, not like yes. interesting. Yeah, 100% that way, except when you get into the upper echelons, especially now in like Scottsdale and stuff. Not a lot of Mexicans other than anybody that's in sports, right? That's right. the only minorities in Scottsdale, right. honestly. Well, that's interesting, too, just to pause, because that, 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 again, this is part of the reason I thought it'd be interesting to people to hear where you're from. Everything shapes perspective, and your more class-oriented perspective is contrast sometimes to my more non-class, but more racial, whatever, perspective, I think, is somewhat shaped by environment. And it's interesting that, that right. out west, that... No. Yeah. 
It is 100% that, and that's why I have a difficulty with this whole idea that because I'm white, I'm racist. I'm like, I, I didn't even think racist, racism was real. I literally grew up as a kid out here. Yes. Hanging out with Mexicans, with black people, with anybody, right? And, and, and thinking that racism was this historical thing, right? Martin right. Luther King and, and all the protests. And I, I thought it was a historical thing that had happened. Right. Because it wasn't, there was no racism, like overt racism here right. that I saw. Right, up, right. Period. Right. And part of that was because I grew up, you know, in in South Phoenix, and that's where, overall in South Phoenix, I say, but it, it was a class thing, and there were black people, and there were Mexicans, and so that helped, in a sense, integrate me, right? Yes. Because I, I didn't see them as different people. I saw us all in the same class. Yeah, and I think that's interesting, too, because where I grew up, the same thing in most of my neighborhoods, but I still had the perspective where I looked up, there were cities that were black, there were cities, towns that were Italian, towns that were Irish, towns, that, and, and, and it wasn't that pronounced where you were from. Interesting. So, with that in mind, yeah, with that in mind, so you're going through grade school and things, tell us about, aside from just the race stuff or whatever, you know, as a kid, Rick, what... Were you one of the students like me who were like kind of disengaged because you were so bored? Were you super engaged? How was your, and I know you've alluded to it, whatever you want to talk about with your childhood, get into whatever you want to stray from, stray from. But how was your childhood with that? You had a single mother. Yeah. Another guy. Okay. When I was just under one, which was barely before I gained perception of the world. Right. <laughs> yes. But, you know, but I didn't know, so I didn't know. Let's just keep that in mind. She married somebody else. The guy raised me as his own. He had two other kids with my mom as I was growing up. Okay. A brother two years younger than me, a sister four years younger than me, right? His yes. Kids. They're blonde, never questioned it. He never treated me any differently. So I grew up in, and, and, and we were poor, and we moved all the time, and I didn't realize that was because my parents had a drug problem, and, okay. and it was heroin, and okay. uh, his mom, my stepdad's mom, was pretty well off. She owned a bunch of nursing homes, and uh, she took care of us, and I was not a that a kid. So when you grow up as a kid, you, everything's shiny, right? You're, yes. Because that's your perception. That's that's normality yes. for you. Yes. Right. These people. My stepdad was like a biker. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was literally a biker in a bike gang, and uh, my mom was like the flower child hippie, right? Yes. And so they kept that away from us. But as, as children, we had a lot of freedom that children just don't have anymore. And uh, we were on our own pretty much um, daily. You know, we we had chores that we were required to do. Uh -huh. We weren't allowed to go into our parents' room ever. Uh huh. And for obvious reasons, looking back on it. Yes. And uh, and then we were released on our own recognizance until until dinner time, right? Until it started to get dark. Really, was the rule. And I mean, this is. We're talking about first grade, second grade for me, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, already we were we were independent. We were out, and we were out doing things that were not safe. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's kind of funny. Not legal. <laughs> right, because I was going to jump in and say, "Oh, me too," but like that wasn't until I was 13, 12, Not not one or not not a young kid for a second grade. Let me ask you this: yeah, so, so you were the oldest, obviously. 
processing that right though you were trying to figure out whether it was because we don't know about i mean we only know so much about reproductivity and stuff you were you were questioning it though you were like okay well let me look at the hair and whatnot and he was trying to hammer it into you interesting stuff like you were confused i never never considered it at all that right this guy wasn't my father until they divorced when i was 11 right and that and that's a big thing that's a huge I bring that because it, it had an okay. impact on my life. Because the, the distinct memory is my mom going, come on, we're leaving, we're leaving. And I'm hiding behind the door in my bedroom, looking at her through the crack in the door, right? Mm-hmm. And she's like, we got to go. And I'm like, why can't I stay with dad? And she says, he's not your dad. And wow. I immediately, as an 11-year-old, went, Oh, okay, that makes sense. And so I left. <laughs> really? Now, did it click because, if you remember, did it click because she just said it and you're like, okay, whatever she says, or did it click because you had these subconscious issues going on and you were like, oh, oh, he's not. And I've been wondering about that maybe, not consciously, but... Yeah, it's a little of both because, first of all, I've been reading since I was five, right? Like mm-hmm. novels like Hardy Boys and... Nancy Drew and, and mm-hmm. Encyclopedia Brown, anything that was mystery-ish, mm-hmm. right? I was reading that from then on, mm-hmm. and uh, so so there was that part of me that it just clicked and it made sense, mm-hmm. and then there was the part of me that that's my mom and I believe her. I had no reason to not believe right. her. Right, so both, right, right. So that's when we left and we went to Montana. That's, and I didn't find out then, but what it was was Two of her friends had moved, their friends, I should say, mm-hmm. had moved to Montana to clean up from the heroin and everything and had gotten their life situated. And he literally came and got us and took us to Montana in his truck. So the guy who, years old. so her friend who was recovering, like came to get her yeah. and her children out of there so she could recover. And you had no clue about this, no inkling, no nothing. Like... You were just nothing, right? And I'm a, I'm a, I was a perceptive kid, right? yes. but I had no idea because I mean it was my parents. There was some weirdness, you know. There was yes. There was a time a guy came and blew a hole through the wall in our house with a shotgun. Holy you know? shit! And you know, just stuff, weird stuff like that that you just go, oh, that's odd. Right, right. But but it isn't until later that you put it all together. And yes. Go, oh, uh, their parents, their friends were named Crash and Microdot and. Larry Downs, you know? <laughs> no, but you know what? That's funny because yeah, even in a lesser extent than me, when you put things together in hindsight, it comes together better. But yes, when you're a kid, you're only piecing. Makes sense. Okay, so now he comes and takes you to, to Montana. Had you ever been out of the Phoenix area at that point when no. you were 11? No, and we moved a lot back then because, like I said, my uh, stepdad's mother apparently was financing every house we ever lived in. Right. So... 
so I, there was a lot of movement. I mean, I didn't go, I think second and third grade, I went to the same school and fourth grade and the beginning of fifth grade, I went to the same school. But other than that, I never was in one place. Wow. And in Montana, after Montana, it got worse. It got worse and worse. Well, so I want to hear that. And it was with my sister, too. She, not because of drug issues or whatever, my sister went, was in every grammar school in my hometown, whatever, like all eight of them. She never was staying the same because we were moving a lot. But that's interesting. So you go to Montana now. You say it got worse with the school. So you would, let me ask you this. When you were moving around Phoenix, were the neighborhoods different when you were moving? Was it all kind of the same because of the class thing? Were they houses, apartments? Do you have any yeah, recollections well, kind of, of that? The same. It was, it was, but you know, you don't you don't think of that as, as a kid. But yes, it was all basically the poor parts of town. I mean, when we lived out in Levine, which is a subsidiary city here, which is all connected now, but back then it was all fields, and it was in the middle of nowhere in my child mind, right? Mm -hmm. And we lived across. We had a dirt road. It wasn't a paved road. Mm -hmm. We had a Route One bus seventy seven T was my address, right? Mm -hmm. So it was a rural route, mm -hmm. and right across the street was a uh, cattle uh, dairy farm. Yeah, with yeah. Fuckloads of cows, and so it was the country, right? Yes. And uh, and that was the quote nicest place I ever lived in in my perspective as a child. But but you don't you don't take poverty into account until you start to get older. Right. And, and that happened in Montana, honestly, because that 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 changed. I had such a perspective shift at that point, and I was aware enough, because uh, like fifth grade, you know, you sort of become yes. engaged, right? You become a, a person. Yes. And and so that had a huge impact on me, and I hated it forever, because we went there in November, right? And I'm from the desert. Yeah. So we went to Montana, like northern Montana. And let me ask and, you, I know you're getting there because you've talked about Montana, but I, and I love where you're going, so I just want to make sure we parse it correctly because I love the visual. You, you're a kid. Do you even, do you, do you know you're going where it's cold, number one? Do you even perceive that, number two? And number three, like you're driving, you're seeing the country, like going from the southwest to the northwest kind of center. What's, do you remember that drive? Do you remember what you're perceiving as that's happened? Do you know where you're going to the cold? Just make sure you parse that out because I find it fascinating. I've never been. So tell us. Yeah, no, no, I didn't. I didn't realize where I was going. Right. Right. My perspective was all, all, all desert. Mm -hmm. that, that was my upbringing. Mm -hmm. um, on the way up there, there were stops, you know, and we stayed at one of their friends' house, and I believe it was, I want to say Idaho. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember going out in the backyard, and it has that surreal feeling, like when you when you go someplace exciting or. Or that, you know, like this, this phone call, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. it's sort of surreal. Like, you don't realize that you're having this conversation and it's all just kind of, you step out of it and yes. look at it. But I remember being in the backyard at this house and standing by a fence, like a chain link fence, and this massive St. Bernard ran up to the fence mm -hmm. and was barking at me. And I'm just looking at it like, what's happening, you know? <laughs> right, and it right. Was cold, you know? Right. And, and it was, and, but no, I had no idea how cold it is in Montana until I got there. And then for me, it, it, it's like every 
Christmas card that you see with those those homes with the icicles. Yes. And you know, there's that little circle in the window. Yes. Right? Where yes. They, where they keep it from. <laughs> yeah, that's where I was. Wow. And, and there's you know eight foot snowdrifts on the side of the road. And I'm just stunned. I'm just, I, I mean, I, for a year, my mom literally says, you cried for the entire first year every day. Now, I don't remember that right. in the case, right. but I can see where it's true. <laughs> and do you think that was because you, you, was it a subliminal sense of I'm not where I'm from or belong? Was it literal sense consciously, like it's freezing and I hate this place? I'm a really sweet, sensitive boy. Uh-huh. You know, and and I was about to have, I mean, I literally had my rope pulled out from under me. Right. From everything I knew and right. everything I was. And so for the environment to change 100% as well, mm -hmm. wasn't that weird. But yes, I was not happy. I, was, I definitely was not happy. I was not happy to be pulled away from the security, even though what I counted as security wasn't that secure, right? We moved around all the time. Right. And, uh... But the cold, just, and the isolation, and not knowing anybody, and having to start, I mean, I was in sixth, sixth grade, I started sixth grade in Montana, and, and so, uh, and it was rough. So, when you went, number one, do you think any of that sense of isolation, was there any attachment to your stepfather that you thought that that might have contributed to it? Number two... Tell us about this town in Montana, like, you know, how rural it was, what kind of people were there, was it different in terms of demographics, those type of things, because I'm, I'm interested in that. So, yeah, so Great Falls, Montana, is a town that basically exists because there's uh, Malmstrom Air Force Base is there. Okay. Right? Uh-huh. And uh, first experience, uh, the reality is, is to, to make a long story short, I fell in love with the place because it was so natural, right? Mm -hmm. and, it, and it embraced me, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And, and and soothed me from all the bullshit that I was feeling. And, and that's really where I gained, because here in Arizona, we don't have really wild rivers or wild fish mm -hmm. or wild game. It's all transplanted and, and monitored, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I fished a lot here, but I've never fished in a place where like you see this, you know, 18 inch trout come out of the water and spit your hook out of its mouth and just be like, fuck you. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> you, you, you don't got me. <laughs> yeah. But so we hear so much about that, Rick, like the wild, untamed aspects of America. There's songs written about it. There's film dedicated to it. There's art. You've experienced it as a youth, too, and I never have. I mean, yeah. I've, I've driven out there. It's not the same as living in Jersey, so I want to delve into that more. Like, what the path you're on, keep down it a little bit. I'm fascinated by that. No, it, it literally became... I mean, it literally was that Americana thing. It was... When I fell in love with it, I fell in love completely. Like fruit on trees, right? Mm -hmm. and, and wildlife, and you could go down and fish or collect crawdads to cook, and, mm -hmm. and that became a thing, because for me, it was it became about survival. Mm -hmm. right? there, my mom apparently traded the heroin for alcohol, and, and that was mm -hmm. far worse than anything I experienced in my childhood with them both being on heroin. Far worse. Right. And a lot of trauma that I'm not really going to go into, right. except for a couple points. But uh, there was a, she had a lot of boyfriends, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. And I had a boyfriend, one of her boyfriends came to us when they broke up. This is one of the first ones. 
And uh, this dude had hung out with me, had hung out with my brother. He took me to his buddy's house. We watched the Ali Frazier fight, right? Yup, yup. That, that's how long ago that was. Right. Yeah, that's what's, what's, and, that's why it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And when he, and when he came, when, when him and my mom were breaking up because she was unstable, he came to us kids and he said, don't ever let your mom tell you that this is your fault. It has nothing to do with you kids. I think you're great, but her and I are incompatible. Interesting. And that, at that point, part of me became a man in the sense that I was like, ah, oh, that makes sense, you know? Right. And, and I started to have deeper realizations about things, and I started to become more responsible because my mom was not. Right, and, yes. You know, when you're 12 and you've got to take care of, you know, your brother and your younger brother and younger sister, it, it gets a little tight, and that led to crime and the whole Aladdin thing, right? The gotta eat to live, gotta steal to eat, and I won't go into that too much, but I got so involved in crime that by 12 years old, the Montana, the Great Falls Police, if something happened, they would come to my house and be like, hey, Rick, this happened, did you have anything to do with it? We have a lot in common, Rick. Um, yeah, so like at, right, at 12, I'm running the crew, right? Yeah, <laughs> so... So, okay, so so you're in Montana, you're only 12. Now you're, you're dealing with that. Right. The, the cops even know you locally. You're looking after your younger brother and sister because you feel this sense all of a sudden. They almost, you, you truly start that conscious journey where you realize some of the things I can control, not all of the things, but I am responsible for my younger siblings and myself because there may be this void above me with my mother. And you have to start yeah. taking on responsibility. So, ne- what are you in middle school? Middle school, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it was uh, interesting. I, I mean, you know, back then, I think that was there was a full eclipse my mm-hmm. first year in middle school in Great Falls, which was odd. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, you, up there you get like night. My mom would be like, be home before dark, and it's summer. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't get dark till like 10.30. We're awesome. <laughs> right, and, right. Uh, and uh, things like that that were great. And, and, you know, on the other side of this, I was becoming this very uh, criminal person, mm-hmm. right? Like, I could pick locks. Oh, so I you were really becoming like, this. yeah, like, like but, super. But I would put gum in, in automatic door closers to get into places. You know, wow. I, I mean, it was. Where'd you learn and, that? And just, just in general, just you know, TV, like watching old shows like The Saint or even James Bond or anything. I mean, it was, it was just something that, uh, to the point where, like by 15, I was like, I, I'm going to be an international jewel thief. That's my goal. <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> that's funny though. But that's so you're picking it up wherever you can, like literally TV. But you're like really pulling some some things here, which is interesting. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And and the thing was is that I never got caught. And sometimes people that were with me would get caught. Mm-hmm. And and then they'd rat me out. <laughs> right. Right. But I mean, we were running things like my brother. I'd go into a store. I'd shove some stuff into my winter gloves, right? Yeah. I'd drop my gloves in an aisle and and walk around the store a little bit more and then walk out. My brother would swoop by and pick up the gloves. Mm-hmm. The guy stops me at the door and goes, all right, 
you know, you stole something. I'm like, I didn't steal anything. <laughs> and uh, and they're like, let me search you. I'm like, search me, you know. Mm-hmm. And and they did, and there's nothing because my brothers walked out with my gloves, right? Right, right. They didn't see that. They just right. saw me stuffing shit in my gloves. <laughs> right. Interesting. And, and it was and it was bad, dude. I'm telling you that. And and the mentality of it, like. I think I wasn't even 13 yet. I was almost 13. I was down at the police station again. And they're asking me about this crew of people that I hung out with. Mm-hmm. And I'm literally telling them, like, gangster movie shit. I'm like, you're not going to get me to rat on my friend's coppers. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, yeah, because you're just emulating that. Yeah, yeah, which I think all yeah. of us in America yeah. seem to do. We emulate that, yes. that like. Yeah, and that's, and that's yeah. what I was doing. I was, I was transposing father figures, right? Yes. From... Not just from gangster movies, though. Like right. from I don't know if you're familiar with the courtship of Eddie's father. No. Bill Bixby, single dad. No, Eddie but I'll have to watch uh, it. Michael Landon from Little House on the Prairie. Yeah, I mean I know those, some of those names, but no, I have to yeah, check it out. I, but I, I know. <laughs> but that was I was sort of transposing. That was where I was building my father figure from, and but it also had to do with toughness. And let, and let me backpedal a little bit here because. Mm-hmm. In third grade, I learned a lesson. My step, older stepbrother, who I was telling you about, they came and lived with us. Mm-hmm. He was a fucker, and he fucked with the neighborhood bullies when we lived in that rural area, right? Yes. And I'm standing there in the house one day. He's, I see him running down the street from our bedroom window. The bully's chasing him, right? Uh-huh. I go out into the, into the living room. My dad, my stepdad, his real dad, is standing at the door. He's running up to our porch. Right, with this bully chasing him, who mm-hmm. I know he's been antagonizing for probably months at this mm-hmm. point. My, he gets up to the patio, my dad shuts the door. And really? And he eats his ass, like right on our patio. Wow. And, and then he, the bully leaves, and my stepmother gets up, and my dad opens the door, and he goes, that's what you get for being such a fucker. Wow, and and because he because he knew he was antagonizing him. Yeah, oh yeah, hundred percent. And my and my stepdad was I mean he was a biker dude. He was a tough guy. And Butch right. wasn't his real name. His real name was Frank, right? But he went by Butch. Right. He was a tough. He was the guy that I. If it wasn't for him, I would have stayed this like pathetic, sappy. Romantic poet. <laughs> right, yeah, right, right, right. He got you like I mean, that tough me, element. He taught me that. He taught me indirectly like that. And he taught me directly, even against his own son. He's like, well, he's bigger than you. Pick up something until you're the same size. Right, wow. But he was teaching you right. like, like survival mode. Street justice, stand up for yourself type stuff that that you got stand from him, yourself. which probably stuck yeah. with you, right? Oh, yeah, except for one thing in Montana, which is when the neighborhood bully, when I was 12, just and I knew he was the bully, right? Everybody knows who the bully is. Back in those days, you knew, right? Mm-hmm. It was always that dude and his one buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. around just starting shit. Yeah. So he showed up at the schoolyard one weekend, and I was there, and we were playing tennis, and uh, I had to drop on him, man. I, I, he was coming at me and just, like, being shitty, and I raised my tennis racket, and uh, his buddy's like, oh, he was gonna hit you with his tennis racket, uh. And the dude proceeded to beat my ass, and I did nothing about it, nothing. He just beat my ass into the fence. Why do you think that was? I think because I felt like I had antagonized him by raising my racket. 
but I, I swore at that moment that one, I would never start shit again, uh-huh. and two, that if somebody started shit with me, it was going all the way. Gotcha. And, that, and that's, that was the rest of my life. So that was a huge moment. Right, yes, yes. So a lot of first moments happened in Montana, not just the, the criminality, right? Because on the other side of it, it was a very Americana, Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer situation. Yeah, right, right. right. And you're that age, too. I've never. Where you're yeah, exploring and the creeks seen, and the I've, woods. I've read those books. Yeah. And I've never seen a river like the Missouri River. Mm-hmm. Right? That thing's fucking huge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, dis- and despite how huge it is and how dangerous it is, it froze over completely in the wintertime to where people could drive their trucks on it. That's how froze over it was. Wow. And then in the in the spring, when the thaw would happen, you would hear the river cracking throughout the whole town, right? And would it, be, would it go on for days, weeks, like the cracking sound? Yeah, just 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 brutally, yeah. And, that's so and, interesting. You know, I'm from the desert. I'm like, this is fucking nature. This <laughs> yeah, that's cool, work, man. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember we would go to the Poconos. My brother and I, like, we were a little, like, you're that age. And we thought it was the wilderness. We wanted it to be. Like, I had a longing for it to be super wilderness. I wanted to get lost, like, in the woods between highways. And every time I came upon a highway or I came upon somebody's house in the in the Pennsylvania mountains, it ruined it for me. And you're in a way more vast area, real nature. And that's awesome. And it's interesting. Yeah, super, super wild. I mean, yeah. like... Okay, so every year they had this thing called the Great Riverboat Race up there where people would build their um, uh, shit rafts or whatever mm-hmm, mm-hmm. out of just crap, right? It was, it was, it was like the joke, right? Everybody <laughs> right. would build their rafts and, and go down the river till the raft fell apart right. and drink beer and everything was fucking great, right? Yeah. So, so my brother and I every year would go down and we'd get these discarded rafts Mm-hmm. and push off into the river. And as we would go down the river, we would try to recruit other kids on yes. the base. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> which their parents were not fond of. <laughs> of course <them>. not, <laughs> yes. And then even the police would be like, oh, but you can't go any farther. <laughs> right. You can't, you, know, you can't do that. And we're like, you know, fuck you, police. Right. Way before, you know. Yeah, it was a thing. NWA yeah, said it. yeah, yeah. And, uh, and we'd do our thing and we'd go off down the river and that was because our home life was so shit overall. Mm-hmm. I mean, we would, you could eat off the land there, man. I mean, we went into this grove one time and there's like water, jets of water shooting out of the solid rock face, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And there's this uh, group of crabapple trees and we would fish and catch our own fish, cook our own fish down by the river. I mean, it was, it was very primitive and uh, mind-opening, I guess you could say. Yeah, and would you say that that, there's something intuitively American about the life you were living where there was this freedom aspect where you weren't necessarily within the constraints of of a household structure that confined you, and you were half engaged in this criminality to get what you wanted and half engaged in this Americana nature, do you think that might be, and and more gauging from your own personal experience, but also what you know in general, do you think that's kind of distinctly American in and of itself, this nature, freedom, and criminality all together? 100%. I I was already... Uh, a little bit criminally minded here, but I was I was very much the city mouse, right? Mm-hmm. What Montana did was awaken me to. I mean, I was living in in the stories 
of America that I loved and believed in, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and Montana, even the authorities were somewhat accepting of that. Right, you know? right, yes. They weren't, they weren't like slap you around, they weren't like throw you in a cell and treat you like shit. These police would literally laugh sometimes, right? Right. They're just like, oh my God, yeah, okay, but you know that's not right. Right, <laughs> they're trying to like educate you, know, like, you move your own, but they accept some level of like, well, these are kids in America running around free. Yeah, kids do what kids do, and they right. they'll learn, you know? Right. They, there, was, there was not an intolerance of it, there was... Uh, what do you want to call it? More guidance, right? right? Right. I mean, we didn't even have social security numbers then, right? Until my mom got in trouble with the police, uh-huh. then we got uh, social security numbers. That's interesting. And I, I was 13, I think, when I got my social security number, which I'm sure messed up the military, which we may go into if there's still time. Well, then, definitely. Uh, I want to keep going. We're going to go through that. That's yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they're so my social security number says I was born in Montana. <laughs> wow, because that's where the inception of it was. So, so yeah. Montana was a big exactly. part of your upbringing, which I didn't even—I knew you were there. I didn't realize it was such a big part of it. I thought it was so much more. Like I know Arizona was a big thing, but I didn't realize Montana was so pivotal in your life, which it obviously was, which is interesting. Actually, so to the point where now, even now, I feel like I need to go back there because. I feel like I've left a piece of me behind. Right. You know. That's deep. And because my because my mom literally, she had another kid. While you were in Montana. Yeah, that was in Montana. In fact, I walked out. I believe the day that my sister was conceived, this fat man on my mom in the living room, and then he proceeded to yell at me. And like I said, at that point, I was a different person, and I was like. You're having sex with my mom, and you're yelling at me in my house. Wait. So now, <laughs> if if you if you want to go in, you don't have to go into details, or but this, how old are you then? Thirteen. So you're thirteen. You you ba- pretty much took us up to this point. You're in the house. There's yeah. some guy over, and and you you had enough. You didn't like him. What was it that you that triggered you to say, uh, you know what, F I you. didn't like like him or dislike him, but my mom had had a lot of partners, and we lived in a lot of really small places, and so that became yes. a significant exposure thing in my life, which played into my life later, where I thought relationships are just that. You know what I mean? Yeah, you, you yes, yes. So you, you were, but the, yes. Yeah, so that was one pivotal moment, right, when this fat guy is having sex with my mom in our living room, and he proceeds to yell at me, and I'm like, uh, you have no fucking business yelling at me. Yes. Right? So you, you had that, and you had that compass at 13. You know what's what. You're like, you, you can't yell at me. Yeah. What did he yell at you for, just being in the room? And the, Yeah, because, well, it was in the living room, because there were, you know, we lived in a trailer, and it was a two-bedroom trailer, and there's me and my brother and my little sister, so my mom didn't have a room. Right. Yes. Sometimes she would curtain off like the dining room. The dining room was like the front part of the trailer. Right. And uh, and she would sometimes curtain that off, and that would be her bedroom. But other than that, apparently they just decided to go at it right there that morning. Wow. And I woke up and came out, and I was like, "That's not cool." Yeah. Right. Of course not. Right. 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 So and and that wasn't the first time that, that, but mostly other places I just heard it. You know, Mm -hmm. I heard Mm -hmm. it over and over and over in those. Three and a half so or so years. Um, one other highlight of Montana, or 
downlight and however you want to look at things. There was, my mom met this guy, Dale, who was a Native American, Sioux Indian, long black hair, fucking warrior guy, had a job. He was the second guy besides the guy I talked about before that took me to the Ali mm-hmm. uh, fight at his friend's house. And he was the only guy that took us, when he had my mom over for the weekend, he also had us at his house. Yes. Right? He'd play catch with us, and we'd yes. all hang out. And he was teaching me Native American lore, which was huge for me at that age. Mm-hmm. So one day my mom comes home, and she's like, so I'm thinking about marrying Dale. What do you think about that? I'm like, fucking great. Yeah. He's a yeah. great guy. Of course. He's always treated us great. So the next weekend they're out, because he drank too. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's in his place, and there's a knock on his door. Or no, he knocks on his friend's door, sorry. And... Uh, his friend is fucked up on whatever. Shoots him through the door with a shotgun. Kill Are him. you serious? No, dude. That's and, 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 I, and I meant to preface this all before this whole podcast thing started. I I am not bragging about stuff I say, and I'm not looking for sympathy and stuff I say. I'm just telling the story, right? Yeah, which I can respect, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it's not it's not looking for sympathy, and it's not. I, I mean, I'm past all that, right? This yep. is what made me who I am now. Yep. But yeah, this guy, so this guy gets killed. And, and uh, so obviously we're heartbroken. My mom's heartbroken. She completely um, goes back into her disappearing for days thing. And and, and understandably now, right? Yes, when you, in hindsight. Because I mean, think yeah. my mom's 29. Yep. You realize how young point? she is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and so, and, and, and it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking because she went out to the reservation for his funeral and the natives were like, you can't be here. And she's like, fuck you, I love this man, I'm gonna be here, mm-hmm. right? So, so there's a lot of my lessons and a lot of the hippie aspect mm-hmm. that we talk about, mm-hmm. it, it, came, it came from there, it came from Montana, it came from the natural world and just that oldie Americana, right? That makes sense. Yeah, and uh, and then and then we went to Seattle, and that was a completely different story. There's not a lot to tell there. So, but just uh, just briefly there. So, so you so your mother conceived of your younger sister. You moved to Seattle. Just what age kind of were you from when you were in Seattle? That was four, almost fifteen, and it was literally like an overnight. Like I, I know I have friends in Montana at, from that age mm-hmm. that I just literally I literally disappeared overnight. We had no warning, we had no, we lived with my mom's roommate, Jan and her buddy, and they said, You're, we're taking you to Seattle tomorrow. My mom had been gone for two weeks already. Wow. And, and looking, for my, <laughs> looking for my younger sister's dad, whose nickname was Baloney, by the way. Oh my God. <laughs> and every time she gets up at the, I remind her of that. <laughs> yes, which you should. But so wait, so she <laughs> went looking for Baloney in Seattle and you were yeah. still behind with the roommates for a couple weeks, and then they said they're going to go take you to your mother, who's in Seattle. Yeah. Okay. And we rode, literally, we could only pack up what we could pack up in his short bed truck, and my brother and I were the only people there, and she had my sisters with her in Montana, or in Seattle, and uh, they drove us, like, in one day from Montana to 
Seattle and they were in this big farmhouse with a bunch of derelicts and this guy had been beating up my mom and oh, I was livid but he wasn't there so fortunately I didn't have to do anything you know, do anything yeah. heinous yes because <laughs> and, and a little bit of backstory on that there was uh, well our forward story we lived in Seattle for maybe a year before I moved back here and uh there was a guy who she was dating and his brother they were all like uh, the best way I can describe them is Leonard Skinner guys, right? Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> and, and, and some of them were cool, like uh-huh. Leonard Skinner guys are. Uh-huh. But this one brother was a complete asshole, and he was threatening me one day, and I ran to my mommy, right, mm-hmm. like young boys do. Mm-hmm. And she was like, get the fuck out of here, you know. She was with his brother, and, and uh, I was invading, apparently. So this guy's like, oh, you ran to your mommy, blah, 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 it should beat your ass. And I'm like... You can beat my ass if you want, but I know where you sleep, and I will tie you to your bed, and I will beat you to death with a two-by-four. Oh, you said that and, to him? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and he knew it. He knew I was I was being genuine at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. He saw it. He, mm-hmm. and, and that was it. That was where I was done. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I was fucking done with people like that. Yes. And I was like, oh, he's bad. <laughs> yeah, no, you were, and you were dead serious. You're dead serious. Like you can do that, but I'll, I'll yeah. be back. So, yeah, I, I mean, I was just done with everybody at that point. So, so then well, Seattle. Back to, you asked me a question a long time ago, right? About, about education. So yes. I was pretty much a straight A kid all through grade school. Yes. And uh, the move put a little bit of a beating on that, but I was still very good. Mm-hmm in school A's and B's and uh, and then the shift to Seattle happened and uh, I mean I, even in Montana though I I went back and forth a couple times back to Phoenix I went to three different sixth grades in two different states Jeez. when you went to Phoenix who were you with were you with your grandmother yeah I was with my grandmother okay which is a pattern that lasted throughout my life, as it turns out. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Which I think a lot of people can relate and, uh, to, honestly, in, in this country. Yeah, sure, yeah. In, in this modern world, sure. That's, mm-hmm. that's not abnormal. Mm-hmm. So, so my grades began to suffer because my mom would disappear for longer longer periods of time, and I couldn't go to school because I had now a, a sister who was four years younger than me, so that would be, what, sixth, let's say sixth grade or seventh grade maybe? Mm-hmm. And then I had the baby, right? Yes. Who was not even in school yet. Yes. So I'd miss school, and then I'd show up, even in Seattle, I'd show up and I'd be like, hey, algebra teacher, I'm really sorry, I'm, can I make this up? Are you going to fail me? And he's like, you know, I can see you know this shit. I, there's no way I can fail you. Right. But you need to do this work. And I'm like, and blah, 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 I do the work. In fact, in Seattle, I got called. I was in a, so they started putting me in, in a, a student, in challenged classes. Right? right, right. Because they would get my transcripts, and it didn't say he missed 30 days that last semester. So yeah, they just had bad grades because right. of that. Yeah, yeah. It just had F. Right. Yes. So they put me in these remedial classes, and I was in a reading class. And again, I've been reading novels since I was five. Mm-hmm. And I had a, a teacher, we were reading Huck Finn, which just appalled me, even at that stage, right? It's, this is 16. I'm, I'm like, why are we doing a novel that has like 13 different local dialects, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm reading and I'm bored because most of the people in the class can't read and I'm not holding that against them. Right. But I, I didn't belong there. Right. 
So I'm reading ahead, and I've already read this novel, so I'm just reading it again for fun. And the instructor calls on me and she says, it's your turn to read. I'm like, well, where are you guys at? So she chastises me, right? Really? In class, like straight up, like, if you can't keep up, you need to pay attention and you need to, and I said, I'm eight chapters ahead of you. <laughs> right, right, right. And of course, I'm this, you know, weird 16 year old, weird hair, you know, I have curly hair, but I'm trying to keep it straight, and it's long, and, and I'm wearing clothes of a poor person. And uh, so she sends me to the principal's office because I'm a smartass, mm -hmm. not because I was actually ahead. Mm -hmm. But uh, so they send me to testing, and I take the test, and it's that, you know, the, you're probably still familiar with California achievement test, right? Yep. That's what it used to be before standardized testing? Yeah, Once yeah. Once a year, everybody takes this test, okay. Yeah. So I take the test. The lady that I handed it into goes, it's only been like 15 minutes. Did you just fill these bubbles in? I'm like, no. <laughs> you know, it was easy. No, I, I got it. Right. I know how to read. <laughs> I've been down this road before. Right. So then I'm sitting another class later on, and uh, over the intercom, like for the school, right, it says, you know, Rick, you need to come to the principal's office. I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. man, I haven't done anything bad for a while. What could this be about? Mm -hmm. So I come in and the principal's like, so you took this test? I'm like, yeah. And I'm thinking I bombed it, right? And he's like, and you took it in like 15 minutes? I'm like, uh, yeah. Right. And he's like, why are you in this remedial class? Because you didn't miss a single question, right? Wow. He's like, what are you, what are you doing in this remedial class? I'm like, <laughs> I literally said, I'm like, I don't know, I'm 16, what do you want from me? Yeah, I'm 16, <laughs> right, right. Right? I'm yeah. like, you put me there, I went there. Right. So that followed, that followed me around that, but that was the first principle that went, you don't need to be there, you need to be somewhere else. Right. But then I got back here and I was also in remedial classes and I was in junior junior high school and I'm in this remedial math class and they're reciting the multiplication tables. <laughs> And in I'm, I'm junior a, in high school? Right? Wow, yes. You're appalled, yes. I'm, fuck, I'm fucking appalled. <laughs> <laughs> and, apparently, and apparently that showed on my face. Uh-huh. Because the teacher is like, oh, you think you're too good for this? I'm like, no, I just, I can't believe we're fucking reciting multiplication tables as juniors in high school. I mean, I did this, I got gold stars in third grade for this. Right? <laughs> right, yes, yes. Yes, so it's third grade again. stuff. I'm yes, yes. I'm in the principal's office and I'm demeaned and told I'm a terrible person, and and they're like, "But what are you doing in this class?" And so, so that's so that's where my ultimately, and I'm gonna try to wrap this up a, a little bit by going. So senior year, I realized that I'm missing too many credits to graduate, and yeah. I had an issue with the American government teacher of all things, mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> I, I I misunderstood. Apparently. You so misunderstood what? You broke up. What'd you say? You misunderstood what? I misunderstood what time the final was. Oh, okay, okay. Period. Okay, yeah. And so I was an hour late. And he's like, that was an hour ago, Mr. Crampy. You, you fucked up and blah, blah, blah. Because mm -hmm. that's how American government teachers are, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I said, okay, well, fuck you then. And, and again, we, last week I said it. That's, that's me, right? That's my... Ultimately, my end answer is always going to be, fuck you. Right. And, and so off I went, and I literally left the school, went to my grandparents. I said, I quit school. I need money. 
I walked down to the community college, Phoenix College, and took my GED the same day. Really? Yep. And that was and that was the end of that. And then I went and then I went and got a job at Baskin Robbins. Yeah, you had your GED, you went to Baskin Robbins. How'd you wind up? Unless there's other interesting things in between that. How'd you wind up in the military? That's an interesting. Okay, so, and, and I want to back that a little bit into Montana again because mm-hmm. I don't want people to get the idea that I'm some lazy fucker that doesn't want to work. Right. My little brother and I, we spent days digging through people's garbage in Montana, pulling aluminum cans out to recycle, mm-hmm. right? Finding car batteries mm-hmm. to recycle because that was where the big money was, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I stole. We used to just kind of plow through people's garages and stuff. I found an old shoebox. My brother and I would shine shoes in downtown Montana. Right. Like, that falls into that old school Americana thing, right? Yes. And I would use the money we made to buy more shoe polish to polish more shoes. Yes. So we'd also shovel walks. I'd go up to people's houses. I'd be like, shovel your walk. Old ladies would be like, yeah, I'll give you Mm -hmm. $2. And I'd bust my ass shovel on a walk. Okay. So, So I went to work. Baskin Robbins, and then I got a job at this place called Appetitos, mm-hmm. which was my first Italian place, and I was 19 mm-hmm. at the time. And uh, busted my ass there, and I, they started sending managers in for me to train because it was a chain here, a local chain. Yes. And in fact, the, the Van Arsdale, those are the twins from the Suns, right? Yes. They uh, they brought into it, and so they were part of the management uh, upper management team. Um, anyway, I was there and I'm like, this is bullshit. If I can train management, I can be management. Right, right. And I finally got a manager in there right after that, uh, a lady. And she's like, I want this guy to be my assistant, period. Mm-hmm. So I became the assistant manager of Appetitos. Mm-hmm. And that was a great gig. And so I busted my ass there and things fell apart. And then I went to uh, streets of New York for a little while mm-hmm. and became, became a manager there. And then my best buddy was joining the military and I was like oh, I'll go I'll go with you let's go on the buddy system so and, you just uh, decided because you didn't because you were just your jobs were just jobs placeholders you didn't really care you're looking for the next thing in life and he was going so you said buddy system I'll go what year was this uh 80 I want to say 85 86 okay 86 okay and you were how old you were in your 20 you were like 20 I turned 22, so it must have been 87, 88. Okay. Because I turned 22 my third day in basic. Okay. So then, and you just decided what made you want to do it? What, what, what was it that made you want to do it? Was it, was it just you wanted to? Well, there, was, there was a lot of things. There was, there was my best buddy going in uh, before the jobs in the because I got into the food industry and I realized fuck I can eat here finally you know mm-hmm, what I mean mm-hmm, I can mm-hmm. eat and make money yes and uh but before that because I had long hair I was always doing construction or landscaping right because that's the only jobs that would have me that paid decently right right, right. so anyway so I went so I, yeah my buddy was going so I'm like I'll go with you that'll be great we went in. He was in ROTC in high school. I was not. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. But, we'll, but they were all, the recruiters were like, yeah, yeah, and they were kind of shining us on. Like, they wanted him, but they didn't really want me. But they would right? take you. Right. When we took the ASVAB, 
and they got my scores back. They're like, yeah, buddy, you're you're the dude. <laughs> right, you're, right, you're right. We, you got a 96 on the ASVAB. Mm -hmm. And then they told us, but you barely made it for the nuclear program. And I'm like, barely made it? There's only four more points. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, uh... I'm going to try to refill my drink. I hope I don't lose you in this. No, you won't. Now, where's, by the way, where's the training out west? Because I know we're at Camp Lejeune out here with the Marines. I forget where the Army is. Where where, where did you have to go for training? For basic was uh, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, which is hilarious, right, given my family background? Yes, it is. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's, it's like a full circle at that point. It is, yeah. So, so I scored high on the ASVAB. We went in. I went because, eh, what did I have to lose at that point, right? Mm -hmm. I was in really good physical shape, I thought. And uh, also because I don't like to talk shit about things mm -hmm. without experiencing them myself. And, you know, I talk shit about the military and the right. conformity of it and the brainwashing and the right. bullshit. And uh, so... Um, so you wanted to experience it, and you did experience. Yes, yes, yes. I was gonna put my money where my mouth was because I did. I was tired of people saying, "You just couldn't hack it in the military. That's why you don't go." You big pussy. Right, 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 right. Yes. So, uh, so off I went. Uh huh. Woohoo. Uh huh. And I, I did really well in basic. I excelled. Uh, it was pretty disheartening to not be in the same platoon with my buddy, but in the same company. Right. And so my platoon's calling out, every every company or every platoon has a, a fat body, they call them. Mm-hmm. Right? What's that mean? And What's so that? Our, that's the guy who's out of shape, who every time you stop somewhere along a march or when you're going to a range or whatever, they pull out, they call fat body and your fat body has to run out. Oh, shit. And do, and they get extra exercise so that they can not be fat bodies anymore. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Did not know so that. So I'm laughing. Yeah. So I'm laughing because Hambone, they called this guy because his name was Hammond. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And he, he was in our platoon and he came running out. He was our fat body. I'm like, ha, ha, ha. And then third platoon calls their fat body and it's my best friend. Oh, wow. Wow. And, yeah, and it was like the Pac-Man, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that was the sound my heart made right then. Did you, was that because you admired him, you followed him in, or was it because you were like, wow, like, he's not who I thought he was? Was it because the no, system was... I, no, I knew he was fat, and I knew he was out of shape, and we had a delayed entry, so we had like three months before we went in, uh -huh. in which I was trying to get him to get in some semblance of shape. Right. I'm like, the Army's going to whoop, whoop your ass, dude. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, I'll be fine, and he's trying to do sit-ups, and he's doing them his own way. I'm like, the Army isn't going to let you do them that way. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. You have to do them the way they want him to do them. Yeah. So, so, uh, basic, I excelled uh, in everything, shooting and the, the drill, drill sergeant loved me, and, you know, because I, I could tell because he made fun of me and made an example of me all the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's how I knew he loved me. Mm -hmm. And I think I told you that story about when I showed up, right, when I was called out and, and told to show up to the drill sergeant's office. Yes, and yes. And I showed up, and they're all like, you fucking showed up. Yes, yeah, yes, you did. You said that on, on the <laughs> podcast, too. Yes, yes, yes. Right. So 
I mean, I'm, I'm 40 out of 40 targets on the on the range. I'm expert shot. I'm expert with grenade. I put I literally put my grenade right down the barrel. They have like these fake, you know, setups mm -hmm. of uh, like Chinese soldiers or Russian soldiers, right? Yes. And it, there was this one with this mortar, and I heard it go tink 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 tink, tink down the <laughs> went down. down the That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and my, my drill sergeant just, just trying not to crack up. That's, right? that's amazing. Yeah. It's like, it's like, that's close enough. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> and, uh, so, so that was me, and I was excelling, except I was, I was just shocked at the way they try to tear you down, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm like, why would you do this if you want people to be buoyant about this company, but I didn't complain. It was basic. I expected that. I, yes. I expected that in basic. Yes. It was after basic that things started to turn. So what happened then? And uh, so we got to uh, Redstone Arsenal, Alabama. Okay. Right? So So are you stationed there or you was another part of training or are you that your permanent position? What is that? Yeah, this was, no, this was, this was the second, this was where we were going to train for electronics. Okay. Okay. To to repair, my, I mean, my my MOS, my job was re repairing medium range nuclear missiles, right? Oh yes, you've told me that, which is freaking awesome. But yes. Yeah. Yeah, I guess uh, if you like. It's that. interesting, I think, though. Yeah, but but so okay, yeah. so you were going to learn that trade in Alabama. That was where you were going to learn that. Right. Yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah, we were right up there in northern Alabama. Redstone Arsenal was right by that space center that's up there, right, right. on the northern border of Alabama. Right. Right. So, so that was really the first place that I fully experienced racism. I experienced mm -hmm. a little bit in the military, uh, in basic, because you know there was those good old boys, and they'd be like, uh, you know, effing black guys, and eh. yeah. And they would ask me because, and even back in my childhood, because I was always so tan in, mm -hmm. in the summertime, I would have Mexicans ask me, hey, are you. Mm -hmm. You know, you an essay, mm -hmm. and I'm like, I I write essays. <laughs> right, right, but but no, right. That's good. Right, right. <laughs> so, so you know, the black people are like, what do you think, Crampy? And I'm like, well, I think everybody should have one. Right. You know, I just left it at that, and mm -hmm. they all just kind of looked at each other for a half hour. And they left me alone. Mm -hmm. But so we moved on to Alabama, and again, I was more, you know, with the beads and and and. Uh, a city boy, right? Yes, yes. And so in the mornings, I chose to get up, run down to where the black guys were playing their music, mm -hmm. right? Their music, mm -hmm. quotes. Right. Which was at that point, like, pump up the volume was a big thing. Right, right. yeah, 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 yeah. And, and so it's me and, you know, 10 black guys, and we're dancing, right, in mm -hmm. the morning at 5 a.m. Mm -hmm. before going out to formation. And all these white people are like, what the... F Fuck is your problem? Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm not a hick. Right, right. <laughs> yes, they wanted you to conform to. They they couldn't understand the. I, th I think these people would have my back before you would, in fact. Right. <laughs> and how? What, what was this? Almost the '90s, what late '80s, and they're and they're still like that, right? Like that's. Yeah. Yeah. But again, that was my first experience. I thought racism was a historical thing. I didn't yes. think it was an actual thing. Yes. But I learned. I learned, especially when I went to visit Birmingham. That was fucking eye-opening. Yes. But, but, uh, but yeah, so I got a lot of grief, and I, and I just started to kind of 
get uptight about the whole situation. Right. right. And so one day I went to my sergeant and I was like, hey, I think I'm done. Really? (laughs) During the training of the electric stuff? Yeah, this was like three months, two months into my advanced training. Right. And I went to my sergeant because you got to go through training. I knew the rules. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. So I went to my sergeant and I said, I think I'm done. I wanted to go out because the week before that, we had been forced to crawl through a mud pit because two people in the barracks didn't make their beds. Right. And at lunchtime, everybody was talking shit. I'm not going to do it. And I'm like, like, yeah, I'm not fucking doing it. I just washed my uniform, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. I'm not doing that. I I made my bed. I make my bed every day. Right. And they're all, yeah, we're not going to do it either. We're not going to do it either. Yeah. But then when we're standing there with Drill Sergeant Muhammad. Yeah. And he's like, into the pit. And everybody's going, ah, they're just diving into this mud, crawling with their uniforms. And I got there, and I'm like, no. Mm-hmm. And they're like, whoa, whoa, you know, the yeah. whole base like record scratched. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> like, what do you mean, no? And uh, I'm like, I'm not doing it. I made my bed. Those people aren't even on the same side of the barracks as us. Right. You know? Right. I, I was like, I'm not, I'm not taking it. And the guy's like, this is how people get killed in combat. You know, you yeah. don't follow an order. I'm like... No, this order's stupid. <laughs> right, right. So you're already seeing like you're you're not you're not, you're not somebody to follow like arbitrary orders like that. So you're already seeing the disconnect between you and the military like that. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And that really happened one morning. We got there. We were bused from Missouri to Alabama, and we showed up at like three in the morning, and they made us in process. Right, we had to go through the whole, all the lines and all the signatures, and get our bedding and get our shit and get our assignments to our bunk, and and so we're in bed at maybe five o'clock. We got into our mm-hmm. our, our temporary barracks mm-hmm. to go to sleep, and then at five fifteen, there's some fucking drill sergeant lifting up people's beds and dropping them on the ground. Right? Why the fuck aren't you in my formation? And I'm like, right, right. Oh, what an what an asshole. Right. Right. And right, right. there, I, I felt like that. That brainwashing that they had done just snapped, right? Yes, yes. And I started to view it differently from that point onward. Yes. So crawling through the pit wasn't happening. Yes. So I was punished. And, uh, you know, they put me in front of the girls' barracks even, which was hilarious. Uh-huh. So, and I, I POW'd for like three hours. Uh-huh. You know, that's, that's squatting with your hands behind your head facing a pole. And the oh, girls were all, they all came up and like, oh my God, oh my God, what'd you do? I'm like, I didn't make my bed. <laughs> right, right. And you they start all scream, and you they all scream and run back in, right? Yeah, you start so to anyway, see the silliness. Yeah. Yeah, even beyond that. So beyond that, so we're going to school. I got strep throat and I was like, yeah, I was telling my sergeant, yeah, I'm not coming out to the formation today. I got strep throat. And he's like, what the fuck do you mean you're not coming out to the formation today? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I got this. I got. I got the strep throat. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. I got. I got to learn. I got to learn how to repair nuclear weapons. <laughs> right. Right. I can't right. be out there today. I can't right. be out there in Alabama in <laughs> December. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. So that didn't go well. So then I started to ask, like, you know, go through the chain of command. This is how you get out. I, I learned all of that. I knew the rules. My buddy was going to come with me. He ducked out at a certain point. I got all the way up to my first sergeant. And then I was kind of held hostage, is mm-hmm. the best way to explain it. And they, I mean, they punished me for like two months. And I'm like, this is how you, 
convince somebody to stay in the military. Right, you right. Know? And to the point where this first sergeant would come while I was unwaxing floors and then re-waxing them in the barracks, which are huge, mm -hmm. right? Hundreds mm -hmm. of dudes in these barracks. Mm -hmm. And uh, think of like a project's building, right? Mm -hmm. That's the barracks in, mm -hmm. in the military. Mm -hmm. And uh, so so I'm doing this, and then the first sergeant comes walking by one day, smart-ass, and he's like, Private Crampy, how's it going? How you doing? As I'm buffing with the, you know, those hand buffers. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen those? Yes. The big brush on a yes. fucking motor. Yes, yes. So I'm buffing, and he's like, "How you doing?" I was like, "Well, now I know why Rambo was so mad." <laughs> That's great. You said that to him. And he like literally stopped, like, "Fuck." Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> and he got scared. So I got I got moved up after that into my you know lieutenant, and then finally I got to the captain, and the captain was telling me. You know, the problem is, he's like, I've looked at your scores, I've looked at your shooting and, and basic. He's like, you're the type of person we need right. in the military. Right. And you want out? I'm like, yeah, I'm done. Right. I'm fucking right. done. Right. And he's like, no, no, you, he goes, you don't understand. We need you. I'm <laughs> like, well, yeah, you, know, you should have done better before, right. Then why, first of all, why are you punishing me? And second of all, if you need me, send me to Officer Canada School. Right. Yes. Said, yes. Oh, I can't, I can't do that. Why was that? Was and that because? Why was that? The college was that it, I, or because they I'm were? I'm guessing. I'm guessing it's the college thing, or it's you know. Again, there's that that class thing. It's been a a weaving in and out of my life situation, Larry, and that's one of the reasons that I am what I am. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it's it's a, that's how I felt. I felt like, oh, I'm not from a wealthy family, so I can't possibly be an officer, right? Right. Despite my qualifications, despite my high scores, despite my high scores in every aspect of the military. And so I'm like, then I'm done. And he's like, oh, we'll see about that. And so a couple more weeks went by and I went, not AWOL, but absent without uh, permission is what the right, captain put. Right, right, So that I wouldn't go to jail. And I knew I was running that line at that point, right? Mm -hmm. I knew I was running the line between jail and and uh, being stuck in the military. Forever. But um, but ultimately what I got was a, an, it, it was an honorable discharge. It turned into an honorable discharge after a year. It was non, uh, I can't remember what they called it. I had my DD-214 somewhere, but it, it became an honorable discharge. And and that was my story of fighting the military. I hope everybody enjoyed that. No, that, I think it was no. And I, you know what I'll say too is because it's 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 a it's a. I think there's probably a lot more. I think that's a good place to put like an intermission. I'd say like the the childhood and then up and through the military. And I wouldn't say we would have to schedule to continue it. You know, tomorrow. But I, I think we should continue. The interview at some point too, because I think. Well, eventually, there's there's a lot of stuff in between that that, that led to the person who I am. But what I didn't want to do is come across as this, you know, this loser who just quits everything. Because that's not the reality of what I did. It was a lot harder to leave the military than it would have been to stay. Right. And I knew that at the time, and I certainly know that now. Right. You know, and the result was my best friend ended up getting booted out two years later for being overweight again. <laughs> oh, my God. It's fucked up, dude. <laughs> and it, that is fucked up. So you got an honorable discharge. How were you? Were you in your mid-20s by then? or 
I was 20, I mean, 22, I, I turned 22 when I started, so I was going on 23, just barely. Yes. So I was going to be 23. So, so, so you got the dishonorable, honorable discharge, and Thank you. then your life went from there. So we have to, we're going to have to... We're gonna have to reconvene because I feel like there's another like 20, 30 years to, to, that I want to yeah, talk it's about. It's a convoluted mess of reinventing myself over and over and over again. But it all comes back. The college thing is is significant, right? Because that's what right. I did after the military. Yes. And then some of the things that I experienced after college because of college, which involved also a drug addiction and a bunch of other horse shit. So that's all. Yeah, some other time, man. I think so, and I think I think. It's crazy too. I don't know why I was ambitious enough to too, to think we could do it in in one episode because it's like midnight. But uh, I think uh, that was my naive, naivete or whatever. But but the the experience from from being young through the military is is gives us I think a lot of perspective as it is. And then we need to. Yeah. I want to hear about the college though. I want to hear about the. I want to hear about the trials and tribulations after that fact too, because a lot of us have gone through that, especially after the early twenties. That kind of takes us yeah. to the through the formative, formative period, and then into the adult experience that you're going to go through, which is interesting. And yeah, it's fucking awful. <laughs> well, yeah, but you know, awful or not, I mean, the way I think, I mean, it's life. Yeah, it's life, right? Which is I, which is what I was getting to about why I could fit something in. It's life. It doesn't fit that quickly. We're gonna continue yeah. this, and whether you and I continue this for maybe next week on our own and release a pre-recorded, because it might take off till the new year, or whether we reconvene yeah. after the new year live. I say we talk about that ourselves and decide what you think is better. I think it's good live, but you know, we yeah, can come. Yeah, I just I didn't know what to expect from this. I didn't know if I should go chronologically. I didn't. I knew there was a lot to fill in. I know there's a lot of there's a lot of shit that I had made notes about that I didn't even bring up. There's things that changed my my viewpoint on life in general. But but I don't. You know, talking to you, again, that's one thing, and, and that's how I feel when I talk to you. I'm talking to you. But I don't know what these other people are thinking. I don't know what these other people that are going to listen later are going to be like, this dude's fucking insane. Right. You know? I don't think so. I think I think people get something from it. What I would say is, let's talk after the cast. I think almost, because I'm going to be off a couple weeks, we should record the second half of it and release it, because I think people okay. are interested in it. We'll talk about it, but maybe you and I just talk you know record it but talk and then release it as a part two because i think it's i think it's really interesting i really do and maybe yeah, we can edit out all the nasty shit because well that's what i'm saying people, they should send their kids to bed if they have them because yeah. it might not be pretty well i want i'll edit things out and then also i think because then you know what would be cool is what i'm thinking is we do the second half of the interview and then after the new year we have you on which you are anyway, but now people can call and ask questions after having heard all this and interact with you about it. I think that's the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's the way to do it. I mean, if, if somebody gets something out of this, my wife really convinced me of that, right? I already got stuff out of like, it. I think it was interesting. I feel like an idiot, but she's like, no, somebody might see it and go, you had a shitty childhood, Rick. If, if people see that that are younger than you and they go, this dude made it out, 
I can make it out, then yeah. that's worth it, right? Yeah, I think so. And I, I mean, that's I, a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful yeah. thing. And I got stuff from it. I think it's I think it's really interesting. The Americana stuff in Montana, your different formative experiences, the military stuff. Yeah. How I, I got a lot from it. I think other people did. They were commenting while we were on the air. So let's let's hold it there and let's let's you and i talk we'll record the second half and then we'll have you on to talk to people about that experience when we resume live shows and i think it's awesome i really appreciate you coming on and sharing all this stuff in depth personal stuff you know it, it takes a lot to do it. it people get a lot from it i really appreciate it because it was honestly good radio and just interesting radio and i i really appreciate you Huh? You know, there's there's the pure fear of of revealing it because I'm a private person, right? Right. But again, you know, you're a friend. My wife's obviously a friend. Right. And you both were on the same page about it, so so here I am, and I just but I know that I can't not tell it in a truthful way, right? Yes. So that's what worried me. I'm like, people are gonna hear this and be like, oh, fuck that guy's. No, I, <laughs> I, I think it, it came across great, and I don't think there was anything really that out there about it. I think it was just some honest stuff that we all got something from. So I really appreciate you coming yeah. on and doing it. Well, let's finish it soon. We'll talk about how we're going to finish Let's finish it and release it. I think it's great stuff, and I really appreciate you taking the time to to spend on the podcast and contribute the way you did. It's really beneficial, and I, re- I really appreciate your time and your effort on that. And I'm looking forward to finishing the rest of it and then looking forward to people interacting with you about it. And obviously, you just on the show going forward. I really, really, really appreciate it, Rick. Thanks, Larry. I appreciate that, man. All right, brother. Let's talk tonight. Let me just get off, wrap this up, and then and then we'll talk tonight about how we're going to go forward with it. You know how to reach me. Yes, sir. All right. All right, later. Bye, Rick. Great interview. I mean, at the end of the day, I was ambitious. Like, oh, you know, we're going to do an interview on Rick and, and go through his life. And then who? You're not going to get through a life or even half of it in, in the time that we had. But that's just interesting stuff. And it's it's an in-depth look at America and the American experience, right? Everybody, we're all the descendants of immigrants. We all go through these things. We move state to state. There's no borders between states. And America has this interesting culture that shapes us. And that's a big part of it there. And generationally, it's different from generation to generation. And Rick's experience is going to be different than the generation after or before him. And so I, I'm looking forward to I'm going to do the entire second half. I'm going to do it with Rick on my own. And I'm going to release that as a second interview over this holiday break that we're going to take. I've been with you guys the bulk of the year. I love being with you guys. It's been a, a tough year, but we've created this podcast through it. We've talked through it. We have bonded over it. We've forged this new dialogue. And I'm grateful that we have. I'm going to say a few words to you, and I'm going to release the second half of the Rick interview over the next few weeks. During that time, I wish you all and your families a safe, healthy, and happy holiday season. Happy Hanukkah to everybody celebrating already. Happy Kwanzaa. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. I'm going to be putting out these episodes. Please listen to the second half of the Rick interview. When we come back for the new year, you know we have our guests, Rick. You know we have our other guests. I'm going to set up something where you could speak to them and ask them questions and whatnot. 
I find it very interesting. Some of us are in our regions of the country. We don't get out to other regions all the time, and it's fascinating to hear, you know, what goes on. So I, I, I sincerely thank Rick for his time. I thank all of you for sticking with us tonight, for listening to us. I wish you all a, a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, Happy Holiday season. Um, and I will talk to you in, in the next few weeks. You'll hear from me. You might not hear from me live till after the new year. Let's hope 2021 is better than 2020. Let's continue to persevere. Let's continue to spread the logical, truthful, objective message to everybody. Let's continue to make positive contributions to our community and our families and those around us. Let's continue to make the most of these lives that we find ourselves in. And let's continue to give a positive impact and a, put a positive energy out there into the world. Blessed to be with you all. Blessed to be with Rick tonight. Blessed to hear that story. And uh, blessed to continue after the new year. I'll talk to all of you very, very soon. Be on the lookout for the new episodes that are going to be released, available anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure you tell your friends and family to tune in and listen to us. And I'll talk to you guys very, very soon. Good night from Newark, New Jersey. Phoenix, Arizona, brother. How are you feeling on this Friday night in Christmas season? I'm good, man. I'm good. First thing I want to do is I want to apologize for being one of the people that pushed your buttons this week. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's not... Because... No, no. Because sometimes you forget when you're in the middle of shit, right, that you... That there are other things going on and other stress factors and... For me, it was just like reaching out in a like a boredom kind of thing. Yes. Kind of punching at you in yes. a friendly way. Yeah, I do know. And yes. I, yeah, I didn't realize the impact it would have, you know, psychologically overall. You know, sometimes we forget what impact our words have on our on our friends. Right. And people we care about. 